This is Jocko Podcast number 358 with Dave Burke and me, Jocko Willink. Good evening, Dave. Good evening. It is with deep personal concern that I officially inform you that your son, First Lieutenant Leon F. Ellis Jr., is reported missing in North Vietnam on on 7 November 1967. He was a pilot on an F-4C aircraft on an operational mission. His aircraft was last seen to roll in on target. Shortly thereafter, a large fireball was seen where his aircraft previously was located. The fireball descended to the ground and impacted. The crew was not seen to bail out, but, however, voice contact was established with your son on ground. Rescue operations are in progress. Lieutenant Ellis may have been captured. For his welfare, it is recommended that in reply to questions from other than your immediate family, you give only his name, grade, serial number, and date of birth. This is the information he must provide if captured. Please be assured when new information is received, it will be furnished to you immediately. A representative from Dobbins Air Force Base will contact you within 48 hours to assist in any way possible. If you have any questions, you may call my personal representative. Please accept my sincere sympathy during this period of anxiety. Brigadier General George E. McCord, Military Personnel Center, Headquarters, United States Air Force. And that was the telegram received by Leon and Moline Ellis, parents of First Lieutenant Leon Ellis Jr. Probably one of the most terrifying things a parent could ever hear about their child. But the good news is Leon Ellis Jr. or Lee Ellis did survive being shot down. The bad news is he was captured. He was captured by the North Vietnamese and ended up spending five and a half years as a prisoner of war. But the good news is he did survive that. He went on to become a colonel in the Air Force, and after that, a speaker, a leadership consultant, and an author. He's written three books, Leading with Honor, another book called Engage with Honor, and a forthcoming book called Captured by Love. And it is a distinct privilege and an honor to have Lee Ellis with us here tonight to discuss his experiences and his lessons learned. Sir? Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Jocko. It's great to be with you. I, uh, I really enjoyed your book, you and Life Babin's book, uh, Leadership Book, Strategic, uh, uh, I'll tell you the name of it. I've written second. a bunch of them, but it's all good. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> it was so good, and I quoted it in, in several places in my book. So thank you for what you've done and are doing, and it's a pleasure to be with you. I'm excited. Yeah, I appreciate it for sure. And I mean, reading your books, and having had 
a couple other uh, POWs from Vietnam on this podcast. We had William Reeder, who was a helicopter pilot, was shot down. He was shot down in South Vietnam, so he made the treacherous journey, uh, months-long journey mm-hmm. through the jungle, staying in the jungle camps, which were, you know, by his account, the m- m- absolute horror. And then, of course, we've had Charlie Plum on as well, and I, I know you know him. So, honor to have you here, share your experiences. The perspective that you all bring to leadership and to life is just unbelievable. And it's something very powerful. I know as I read through what you all experienced, it's impossible not to try and take some lessons from that and improve the way I live as a human being. Um, But with that, let's, let's, before we jump into your time in, in Vietnam, Let's let's start off in the beginning and how you how you grew up. So you were born in uh, born in Georgia, right? Yes, I uh, I was born down in South Georgia. But when I was about two years old, my parents moved back to North Georgia because my grandmother had cancer, and we wanted to live near my mother's parents on the farm. And we lived in a four bedroom, a, f- a four room house there on the farm, <laughs> not a four bedroom. <laughs> uh, two bedrooms, a living room, and a kitchen, and that was it. Back in, that was back in the 40s. My grandmother died, and then we moved in with my grandfather on that farm. So I grew up uh, in the real days of farming. We went, by the way, we went barefooted from May until October. That was a, a thing we were proud of. We wanted to get those shoes off and go barefooted. Uh, didn't wear a shirt much in the summertime and uh, worked on the farm. And it was good. And looking back, it was good that we had that responsibility. My dad was not a farmer, but he uh, learned to do some and worked some. But my brother and I worked a lot there on the farm. Uh, my mother was a wonderful cook, and every we had this huge garden, and we would grow an acre of garden stuff. So <laughs> we, my mother would can 100 quarts of beans every summer and corn and peas and butter beans and all this stuff. Well, my brother and I did a lot of that work, and we would sit on the front porch in the swing uh, shelling butter beans or stringing beans at night, uh, listening to the Atlanta Crackers, which was uh, like a double-A baseball team before it became the Atlanta Braves. And uh, that was life, you know. It was a good life and hard work. I, my brother milked a cow uh, because my dad went to work in town. My brother would milk the cow in the morning and evening. That was good because I didn't have the same grip he did. He was bigger than me and older. But I fed, uh, fed the hogs, fed the chickens, chopped the wood, and brought in the coals every day. So, you know, this was uh, the good thing was we learned about responsibility. We learned about being in the cold. We drove cars that sometimes the batteries were dead and you had to push them off. And they were all straight shifts. So it was an era when we just, as young kids on the farm, we had a lot of responsibility. But out there on that farm during the Korean War, so, which was 1951 to 53 or 54 time frame, uh, I was born in 43, so I was like eight, nine, ten years old. And I'd be out there on the farm working, and I'd keep looking up because overhead were these huge formations of airplanes going off to war or going off to prepare people or drop, you know, paratroopers or whatever. And I'd look up at those airplanes, oh, wow. And all of that because when I was five, my parents took me to Athens, Georgia, which is 10 miles away, where the University of Georgia Bulldogs are, by the way. 
And uh, in the in the park, the Veterans Park in Athens, Georgia, there was a World War II fighter plane. And I climbed up on that wing, and it was like at age five or six, I said, this is me. This is what I'm going to do. Well, now, I was also big into sports. My, brother, my mother's brother had played football at the University of Georgia in 1928-29. He became a doctor, and his two sons played on scholarship at the University of Georgia in 50, 51, 52. So we would go down and watch University of Georgia football practice over on Ag Hill there. So I got this in my mind, and I wanted to be a quarterback at the University of Georgia. So I was a quarterback in high school, and I was above average, but I wasn't the fastest guy on the team. In my senior year in high school, I only weighed 155, (laughs) and they did not recruit me, which I didn't expect them to. So I went on to the University of Georgia when I finished high school and got in Air Force ROTC, and then I knew that was what I wanted to do. So what year is that that you go to college? I graduated high school in 1961. Went to college then, and... uh, Graduated in four years in 1965. Now, I was probably the worst student ever to graduate in four years because I just, I had never really learned to study. I was kind of ADD and focused on whatever, and I had to work uh, to pay my college tuition and all that. Didn't have any money, so I worked and lived at home after my first semester there, uh, lived on campus just because I saved up money and wanted to do it. But, uh, in ROTC, I graduated as a distinguished graduate and went to flight school with the academy class, A class of flight school. Was it, was it hard to get into flight school? Uh, not for me. Uh, I passed the exam and uh, the written exams, and uh, I got my pilot's license my senior year in college. The Air Force had a flight indoctrination program where they kind of screened you out and I sailed through that and went right to flight school. And I'd always been driving. I started driving cars when I was 11, <laughs> tractors when I was 12. And I could drive them by myself. I mean, they would let me go with the responsibility to go drive them. I chauffeured for my grandfather when he was uh, when, when I was 12 and 13. So I'd always been very confident about operating machinery and taking risk and being able to go right to the edge but not go over it and so uh, it just was a natural place to be and when they told me that I passed the physical to be a pilot in my after my sophomore year I was just thrilled and I went over and changed my major I was in pre-med and uh, because my uncle had been a doctor and I wasn't going to get into medical school with my grades because I didn't study, I went over and changed my major to history and sailed right on through in four years <laughs> and off to flight school. And uh, flight school for me, I had a check every month. I bought myself a new car. What kind uh, of car was it? Uh, well, I was going to get either uh, – I was going to get a GTO. Oof. It was They had only come out with GTOs in 64, and this was 19, summer of 65. The problem was the GTO was bucket seats, and I wanted a bench seat because mm-hmm. back then I wanted my honey to be sitting, like, real close. <laughs> and I said, I'm not going to buy one of those stupid GTOs. I love GTO. <laughs> so I bought the Cutlass Supreme, which is exactly like the GTO, except – uh, it's a little bit smaller engine, and it had a bench seat. Mm-hmm. And I bought wire wheels on it to be cool, you know. <laughs> so, uh, 
And my roommate bought a, his dad was a Ford dealer, and he got a Mustang, so uh, my roommate in flight school. So we were cool, and Valdosta State College was right down there in Valdosta, 11 miles away, man. We could just roll in there, and well, we'd go to the freshman dorm and say, well, who's in there? And they had to sign out. We'd say, well, Janie and so-and-so, will bring them down here and let us meet them. And they would. And we'd, if we liked them, we'd take them to, let's go to the clubs. So I did not study very hard in UPT. And to me, UPT, I had a check, I had a car. There was girls nearby. And I was living the life that I wanted to live in college, but also doing flight school. Wait, what's UPT? Undergraduate pilot training. Okay. So is that before you go to, before you go, before you graduate from college? No, this is right after I graduated. Okay, so you graduate, you get commissioned. Three days later, I was in flight school in Valdosta, Georgia at Moody Air Force Base. And this is 1965, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. What are you hearing about Vietnam? How much is that on the radar Just started, right now? It's starting to jump uh, jump up, and you, there's some debates. You see them. If you watch TV, there'll be some debates on there, and uh, Secretary Russ could be on there. They'll be talking about it. And we'd see a lot of um, Army helicopters would come through and pass refuel and there and, and Moody and going on. You know, this was when the Army's airborne, the Army, uh, whatever the helicopter groups were called. They really the got Air Cav. going. Air Cav got yeah. going. That's right. And they would come through. But in flight school, um, we didn't have any instructor pilots that had already been on a tour. And then as I was in the T-38, which was the second stage, the advanced uh, flights part of flight school, uh, there was a major came in, a single guy who was a major, and he had just come back from a tour in Vietnam as a, as a uh, uh, the what's the Navy – Prop airplane that's uh, the Air Force had one too. A one, A one, A one Sky Raider. He'd been A one Sky Raider pilot. He's a oh, fighter yeah. pilot, but he'd been A one pilot for a tour over there. And he told us about it. And he went cross country with us. And uh, he was he was a fun, a really great leader and a great guy. So he was the first combat veteran we'd ever met. And he was single, so that was fun. <laughs> <laughs> but and, uh, hey, what's the what's the training aircraft? The T thirty eight. The T thirty eight. Is that the same one you use now, Dave? It's yes. the Air Force still using it. Yeah. Yes. They've been using it sixty years or so. It had just come out into the Air Force in sixty three, sixty four, and so it's a supersonic, uh, twenty engine afterburner, two seater. Uh, the fighter version of it was the F five. Got it. But uh, you know, it would go supersonic. It would. Uh, it would climb great. It was a, a great airplane for us to fly. It flew, it flew faster on final than most of the airplanes do now. You know. It was, <laughs> now, are you competing for that fighter pilot slot? Yes, but they were going to be plentiful. I was in. I was uh, in the top ten percent of my class until on my contact evaluation of the T thirty eight. My instructor had told me, well, on the single engine landing, don't worry too much about your airspeed. Well, on my check ride, my airspeed was about 10 or 12 knots high, and I got downgraded. And that took me from like uh, third or fourth in my class down to about the 50 percentile in my class. And it, I just couldn't get back up. There wasn't enough more check rides to get much higher back up. So I was probably in the top 40 percent. But Technically, in my mind, I, w- I knew where I was. I should have been up there in the 10%. But the, in my class, 
which was 67A, but it was in, it was in 1966, but the physical year, we graduated in August 1966. Across eight training bases, there were 500, oh, I'm sorry, there were over 800 pilots being trained that whole year. And over 500 of us got F-4 back seat. They were putting pilots in the back seat. Now, the Navy didn't put pilots in the back seat. They put Rios. Mm-hmm. But the Air Force was trying to get get more, use money to get more pilots training, okay? So they said to Congress or somebody, hey, we need more pilots because they were putting pilots in the back seat. And so we had to go over there, first tour in the back seat. So, and and as I was going through my combat training, there were some of the front seaters that I knew I was a lot better pilot than they were, but I helped them look good. So, most of them were good, but not all of them. So you get done with that. You get done with the T thirty eight, and then it's into then you get assigned the Phantom. Yes. And how? But were you assigned backseat for the Phantom? Yes. And then were you mad about that? Well, I was, but there were only three other single-seat fighters in my class. Okay. There were one guy got a 105, and one guy got a 102, and everybody else got backseat F4. So there was no choice. All of us, all my buddies and I went there, and, you know, we were going to go do it and pay our dues and get out and go to the front seat or go to another airplane so that was kind of a normal pattern you'd go the back seat yeah. for a tour and then you yeah. get get into yeah. the front seat in fact i was actually i didn't know this but my buddy lance Sideson, who went down two days after i did medal of honor guy we and i were starting they were starting to fly us a little bit with some uh, in, instructor pilots who were check pilots and they didn't tell us this but they were going to upgrade us to the front seat in combat i found that after i came home <laughs> and i thought that's not very wise to upgrade somebody the front seat where you didn't even in the back seat you didn't have a pickle button you couldn't pickle the bombs and fire the gun in the back seat you could fly the airplane uh-huh. and everything but you couldn't pickle the so you would need gun. further training on that yeah. before you moved up yeah. there yeah the the f4 phantom is my favorite american bird that thing was just like a modern masterpiece at the time, right? Yes, it was. It it was uh, a lot of power, and uh, it wasn't the sharpest turning one, but it would turn pretty turn pretty pretty doggone good. It would pull G's well, and it had a lot of power, and it could carry a lot of stuff. The problem was it was built as a Navy long range interceptor. Okay, so they didn't have a gun built into it, just had it with missiles. Well, the Air Force wanted it for more air to ground than air to air. So uh, we actually started carrying a pod gun, a 20-millimeter pod gun, underneath in the center station while I was there, and we did quite a bit of that. It was the same gun that they later built into the airplane in the F-4E. And the a, now the A-10 now has a 40-millimeter gun. <laughs> they built an airplane around the gun, but, yeah. So then when, when you get done with that training, how, how long is it before you go to Vietnam? Normally the, uh, the replacement training unit, which would be like the RAG in the Navy, the RTU in the Air Force, we went to, I went to George Air Force Base. There were three different bases that were doing it in the high desert, right near where Top Gun worked out and was filmed there in the high desert. And we go there and we do air to ground, air to air, 
refueling and that sort of thing, and then we deployed straight to war. My order said F-4, F-4 Phantom pipeline Southeast Asia. Pipeline meant as quick as he gets combat trained, he's going to go to Southeast Asia. And so now it's 1967? Yes. And so now Vietnam is pretty much in full swing. Yes. And how's that sit with you, with your teammates? Uh, you guys just all, like, that's your goal is to get to Vietnam and yeah, fly in combat. Yeah, I think most of us were, that's where we're going to go. And they changed our assignment two or three times because the weather over there and different things. So one time they told us we were going to go to Japan, to Masawa, and stay there. And we go TDY to the war. Well, the wives and kids were getting shots and everything, getting ready to go overseas to Japan. And I thought, well, it'll be okay. We were going to take F-4Es over to Japan. And then all of a sudden, about two weeks later, they said, that's been canceled. We're back to the original. You're going to go to, straight to the war. So the main thing we did, though, was we got uh, – we'd already had survival training before I went to uh, George to get the combat training. And so now we go to water survival because we had a little bit of time. They said, you're not going to go to July. So I went to water survival and then departed the States on about 30 or – 30 June or so, headed, went to the Philippines through Jungle Survival School uh, about a week there. In the what Philippines. year is this? 1967. Okay. And then straight from there to Da Nang, which was in the northern part of South Vietnam, about 70 miles south of the DMZ that separated North Vietnam from South, <coughs> south Vietnam. Mm-hmm. And so there's, that's where you end up flying out of. That's where your, your base is. Yes. You end up flying out of Da Nang. Yes, and we flew uh, a lot of combat sorties over the north. Those were our counters. If you got 100 sorties over the north, you could go home. If you only flew over South Vietnam, you had to fly for a year before you could go back home. So whenever we could convert a a mission in Laos or South Vietnam, get something done, and then have a little bit of ammo left, we'd go over to North Vietnam and work with the Ford Air Controller there, the Misty Facts, and... uh, get that counter in what was the what was the main mission that you were getting tasked with doing it was uh there were two missions one was close air support for combat troops in i-corps which was the northern part of south vietnam in support of the marines and the army so we would do those we would set alert sometimes for that and we'd get scrambled and go out when they got or about to get overrun or something getting attacked and go out and do close air support and that was a lot of fun but most of our missions, I had about 15 or 18 of those kind of missions, but most of the missions were uh, road recce and bombing of trucks on the road, bombing out uh, bridges, keep the roads bombed out so they could not, the Ho Chi Minh Trail, to keep them from bringing truckloads of troops and war materials into South Vietnam. They would come down south, the Ho Chi Minh Trail, which ran parallel to the coastline, and then as they got to the DMZ, they would cut over into Laos and then go down through Laos and then cut back into South Vietnam because that was the safest way for them to travel. So that's why we flew into Laos was to blow up those bridges and roads, and if we could get a, a convoy of trucks, you know, we could wipe those out pretty quickly. And that's where that so that was the main mission that you yes, did. Yes, it was. We were flying uh, mix of uh, combat uh, air patrol supporting the bombers, fighter bombers up around Hanoi when I got there at Da Nang. 
most of those, there were Da Nang and Ubon F-4s were supporting uh, the air support for the 105s, Air Force 105s and F-4s that were flying combat attacks in the Hanoi area up in North Vietnam industrial complex. But about four or five weeks after I got to Da Nang, the whole policy changed. 12th Air Force was in Saigon, and we were part of 12th Air Force. Uh, I'm sorry, 7th Air Force. And 12th Air Force controlled Laos. And I'm sorry, controlled Thailand. And that's where we had four main bases in Thailand where we're flying missions out of. And a lot of them were going over North Vietnam into the Hanoi area. So we lost the bombing and the combat air patrol support, uh, MIGCAP, I guess you call it, MIGCAP. We lost that about a month after I got there. So I did not get to go on the MIG patrol up around Hanoi, and I was very disappointed because that's what I'd always wanted to do. Was just dogfight. Yeah. Yeah. Just dogfight. Plane against plane. Did you ever see any MIGs? Not from the air. (laughs) I've seen them on the ground. (laughs) When I was in prison up there, I saw them a few times. The, uh, do you remember your your very first mission that you flew? Was it you know for like guys going into ground combat? You kind of remember the first time you rolled outside the wire. Was your first mission was it monumental in your brain, or was it just like oh another day? It was just like going out to the range and bombing. Really, it was kind of more like that. Well, it seems like uh, these- we got shot at. I'd say most all the missions we got shot at, and we'd come home and have some bullet holes from. Uh, ground fire mm-hmm. mostly uh, i never got hit by any real triple a i don't think up there didn't have any big holes blowing my airplane but it was common to have you know uh ground fire rifles did holes. you feel like the threat when you were flying up there how what was the threat level that you felt uh i know in the book you you, you end up mentioning you you had i think three of your friends had been shot down like how often is that happening where guys are guys are getting shot down and you're rolling up there what is it what's your what's your impression or did you have the typical young man's impression which hey it's too bad it happened to someone else but it sure is not going to happen to me I'm too good well it was kind of that uh, <laughs> but it was sad too you know to I'd lost uh, two roommates before I was shot down and then another one after I was shot down but uh there were a lot of people shot down this the summer and going into the fall of 1967 it was a huge number of people shot down because our our combat missions increased significantly and their uh anti-aircraft artillery surface air missiles increased significantly during that time so it was pretty common for airplanes to be going down did you feel like uh the skill level that it takes to drop bombs Back in back in your day, I mean, nowadays it's a computer that's doing it, right? Yeah. The computer's doing all the work, yeah. and you're just in, inputting the numbers, and it's going to put that bomb wherever you tell that bomb to go. Did you feel like you were getting better? Was it were some guys better than other guys? You know, in the SEAL teams, which I was in, you know, you got this guy over here. He's really good, long range shot with his rifle. He's going to be super accurate. This other guy, maybe he's not so great. Did you guys have that kind of pecking order in terms of hey? You know, Lee's getting sent out to get this bridge because we know he's good. Or, hey, don't send Lee out to get that bridge. Maybe he's not the best of our guys. Did you guys have that kind of pecking order? Yes and no. 
uh, the flight commanders were generally established fighter pilots at that time. And so they were usually the best in the squadron. So they were setting an example. And, uh, but at this time, because of the war, you know, in 1967, by the summer of 67, all the fighter pilots have gone over and done their year, 100 missions, and come home. Not all, but many. The first big chunk of them, okay? And they don't want to send them right back. So they brought in guys from B-52s, from C-130s, to book them F-4 front seaters, okay, in fighter pilots. Well, us who had been flying, us backseaters who had just been flying the T-38, we knew that one of our jobs was to keep them safe and help them be fighter pilots. Seriously, I mean, they were good pilots, but they just hadn't been flying fighter airplanes, and they were a little bit more cautious and slower thinking, I think, sometimes. (laughs) And so we were almost coaching. There were times I was coaching the guy in the front seat. Now, don't roll in yet. We're not not close enough to roll in yet. (laughs) So, uh, you know, it's hard to say, but most of the time when when I flew with the – uh, more senior guys and who were the experienced fighter pilots, they were really good. Mm-hmm. And what about like, uh, so you deploy in 1967, you're over there. The political thing in America of, you know, the war protests, they weren't really strong in 1967. No, yet. it wasn't going strong yet. It was just starting to roll in certain parts of the country. I think the thing for me, <clears throat> I realized very quickly, and most of the pilots realized very quickly that we were not fighting this war in the right way. And you saw that even from your time, you're a first lieutenant, you've been in the Navy for, or sorry, you've been in, you've been in the Air Force for a short period of time, and you're already seeing as a first lieutenant on your first deployment, this maybe doesn't make the most sense. Yes, I did see that. I said, why don't you let me figure out how to pick the targets? I mean, I did. I yeah, wanted because the targets say, are getting picked by like Washington D.C. and stuff, yes, right? Yes, exactly. And I'd say, well, here's how we need to do this. We need to go up there and bomb out the roads, you know, just bomb them out in certain specific places intentionally, about an hour before dark, and then as quick as it gets dark, the trucks will back up, and we'll go in and strafe them all and wipe them out. Well, that would took me about a month to figure that out. <laughs> And sometimes we did that and sometimes we didn't, but it wasn't part of the plan. Mm-hmm. There was no plan to that. You had to fly sorties to some degree to when Saigon said fly them. And to a large degree up around Hanoi, you could only fly them when they told you to. And, of course, the enemy knew exactly when we were coming. So it was just ridiculous that so many decisions about what to bomb and when to bomb it was made in Washington, D.C. by civilians who knew nothing about warfare. And even you, as a first lieutenant, you're yes. what? Twenty three years old, twenty four years tw- old. I, I, hit, I was twenty three when I got there. Twenty three yeah. years old. You're just driving around a muscle car in America as a knuckle dragger, and even yeah. you figured out, hey, you can't micromanage this thing from Washington D.C. Yes. And and I was it was kind of down. It was kind of a downer for me. Mm-hmm. It's like why can't somebody stand up and fix this? You know. At this point. Are you seeing uh, the POWs, any of that propaganda stuff that it, that, w- that would come out over the years? Are you already seeing that, some of that stuff? 
You mean in our culture? Yeah. So, so in other words, you're there. You're flying. At this point, obviously, pilots had been shot down. Pilots had been captured. Soldiers, sailors had been captured. And and that propaganda, you know, as POWs, is it not really out in 1967 no. yet? They, they weren't really pushing that hard, uh, the Vietnamese, to get that propaganda out. No, we had not. I had not heard any propaganda from POW camps. I didn't know anything about the POW camps of what was happening. I'm sure some folks did, but uh, I knew some of my buddies had been captured, but I did not know what was happening there, other than it was a. They were probably prisoners. So how many? How long had you been there um, before you ended up getting shot down? Well, I got there uh, around the third of July. And I was shot down the 7th of November. And at that point, I had 53 missions over North Vietnam and another, I don't know, 15 or 16 or so over South Vietnam and Laos only. All right. Well, probably a good time for me to pick up this book. Um, The book is called Leading with Honor, Leadership Lessons from the Hanoi Hilton. Uh, This is just out of the gate. We're starting it off from the book. It says this, November 7th, 1967, 4 o'clock p.m. Captain Ken Fisher and I rolled into a dive bomb pass in our F-4C Phantom Jet. As we swooped downward, our bird with turned up wing tips, elevated tail, and deafening roar must have resembled a high-tech version of a prehistoric pterodactyl. Tracers from the North Vietnamese anti-aircraft artillery flashed by our canopy like giant Roman candles. Their explosions encircling us with ominous puffs of gray and black smoke, each representing hundreds of shards of shrapnel designed to mortally wound our beautiful beast. As our jet plunged toward the artillery positions at 500 miles an hour, the earth enlarged in our windscreen as if we were adjusting the zoom on a telephoto telephoto lens. It was eyeball to eyeball stare down with the enemy, with each side expecting the other to die. When you face enemy fire, you are at the point of the sword. Ken and I had been around long enough to know that the sword of combat cuts both ways. We had lost three close friends in similar situations in the prior two months. We released our heavy payload of bombs and our lightened plane lurched upward. Suddenly, an explosion rocked our aircraft. A terrifying sound, like marbles in a blender, alerted me that the metal of our expensive flying machine was ripping apart. The cockpit was still intact, but it was rapidly filling with smoke. The control stick was frozen at full aft right, and we were tumbling end over end through the sky. Just before bomb release, we had been at 6,000 feet, descending rapidly in a steep dive. Now, on fire and out of control, there was only one option, eject. But that was impossible. I was upside down, floating out of my seat with my head pushed against the top of the canopy. If I ejected while we were in negative Gs, I would suffer severe injury, even death. But time was running out. At our rate of descent, we would soon be out of the envelope for safe ejection. Suddenly the cockpit flipped again and I felt pressure in my seat. Positive Gs, it was now or never. I sat up right and pulled the ejection handle. An explosive charge fired, blowing away the canopy. Still strapped in my seat, I was blasted free of the aircraft, like a carnival stunt artist shot from a cannon at an acceleration force 18 times the force of gravity. 
Now, if this expensive one-time-use Martin Baker ejection system was going to save my life, it would have to flawlessly execute a remarkably complex series of events. A half a second later, the man-seat separator worked as advertised, firing a blast of compressed air to the open lap belt connecting pin, freeing me from the heavy seat and triggering the appropriately named butt snapper. A folded nylon belt under my seat that mechanically snapped tight, thrusting me into space. As the ejection seat moved away, the attached lanyard pulled out the D-ring, deploying my parachute. The F-4 Phantom's marvelously engineered James Bond-like escape system had snatched me from the jaws of death in less than two seconds. But, much like Bond's adventures, escape from one danger only brought another. So you, when you're in negative G's, you can't eject. That's the rule? Well, if you do, you might just smash your head on the canopy. <clears throat> and then it'll just break your neck and kill you. It could, yeah. So you're going 500 miles an hour and you're 5,000 feet. How many seconds is that? How, many, how, how far are we from impact? Two or three at the most, I guess. It, it would have come very quickly now once the airplane blew up and was tumbling it wasn't going 500 miles an hour. Oh, okay. we were probably be- between 450 and 500 miles an hour when the bombs came off and we blew up and then within another second we're tumbling and so it's it's slowing down and you know that part i can't remember it all happened so quickly this is it within you know less than a second it happened so quickly, I don't remember exactly, except I knew I had negative G's and I needed positive G's, I'm gonna wait a little longer. And it flipped and there it was and I pulled that handle and Ken did too and it was, uh, it's just unreal that we got out to be honest. All right, well, you, I will, let me tell you one yeah. thing. We were the first, I didn't know this till several years later, we were the first probably to be blown out of the sky by the FMU-35 fuse. Because when it came off in less than two seconds, when there were bad fuses, it was a new fuse with a new type uh, chemical reaction or whatever. But some of them were bad. So what is this FMU-35 fuse? It goes into the head of the bomb. It screws in. And it was a timed fuser so it, you could drop it and it would lay on the ground and wait for 10 seconds to blow up or wait for an hour to blow up okay well we didn't even know this was we were the first ones to ever fly with that and we were not supposed to be flying with it we had not been told we had been told they were coming but we had not been told that we had one mm-hmm. so i wouldn't know when i did the bomb inspection the armament inspection i wouldn't know an fmu 35 fuse different from another one there was just a fuse but ours blew up. It, they blew up in 1.8 seconds after they came off, and boom. And most of the people that had that happen died. Hmm. My roommate died two weeks later from that. And this is because he's shooting the missile, and it's detonating 1.8 seconds later, and it's not far enough away? Is that? No. It was dropping a bomb, okay. And when it comes off, it detonates in 1.8 seconds after it's released, which is maybe 100 feet from where you are. It's parallel. See, it's going to parallel you to some degree, right? Okay. 
and it blew up maybe two or three hundred feet under us, and all that shrapnel out of the out of one blew up all the rest of them. And so all these bombs blew up, and it blew our air. Normally, when you get hit by anti-aircraft artillery, it doesn't blow your airplane up. It might blow off part of the wing, or it might blow off part of your tail, or shoot a hole through your uh, fuel tank and or your engine and blow out your engine, but it doesn't blow your airplane apart. So that in itself is very unusual for an airplane to be blown up by anti-aircraft artillery. Well, we found out... Uh, Several years later, a POW, I was put in another cell with a POW, and he was telling me about how he was blown out of the sky by his wingman, his flight leads, bombs going off. And he said, at Da Nang, we had lost like 12, 10 or 12 airplanes over a period of about six weeks, and almost all of them died. Very few of them were recovered. So is that what happened to your bird? Yes. And we didn't know that. You just thought you got hit. Yeah. Because there was a lot of AAA, uh, you know, tracers right going right by the cockpit. So, what else would you think? Nothing else. It had to be that until we found out that uh, what it was like to be blown out of the sky by the FMU thirty-five fuse, and it happened. Lance Sijon, my buddy, two days later. Doug Condit, my roommate, two weeks later, and neither one of them came home. So, and they were great guys, great pilots. Incredible men. Wow, that's horrible. Man, talk about a lack of communication. That's just, that's crazy to think about. Well, they never really solved the problem. And, uh, you know, between the industrial and military. uh, No one takes ownership of the problems and no one solves the problems. Okay. they finally, the, the, the wing commander, General Colonel Basay, Boots Basay, uh, was a pretty famous guy being in the ace of Korea War. But he went down to Saigon and said, you can court-martial me, but we're not going to fly those anymore. Wow. Um, going back to the book here, I had ejected from the womb of the F-4 into a very unfriendly world. Hanging in the parachute without my shell of protection, I felt exposed and vulnerable. Gunfire cracked below and bullets whizzed by me. Instinctively, I followed the procedures ingrained by regular refresher training since entering flight school. Check for a fully open chute. Activate the emergency beeper. Decide on deploying a life raft. Pick a spot to land and steer your parachute. Prepare for the parachute landing fall PLF. So you're going through the motions. You're, you're thinking through your training. I had one goal, and that was to evade capture. And I was going, my training, it was unreal. I, I couldn't believe that I was so focused on my training and what I was doing. Here, the enemy is still shooting at the wingman, and bullets are going by, and I'm just focusing on what I'm supposed to do. Could you see Ken Fisher? No. He was about a uh, half mile away. When you eject, do both of you get ejected? So no. one person, so you, you each have to pull your ejection hand. Yeah, some airplanes are that way, but ours wasn't. You know, the F-4 wasn't that so way. So you don't know if he made it out. At this point, you don't know no. if he ejected or not. No. <clears throat> I'm looking down, and uh, I can see the ocean just a few miles, three or four miles away. And we were, we were attacking the gun protection for the Coin Key Ferry. That's what the, the uh, Fort Air Controller put us on to bomb those 
gun areas. And so I know where I am. I've flown to this area a lot. And so I, I made a radio call as quick as I got on the ground. I did my parachute landing fall, and I hit all the points, jumped into an old bomb crater, pulled out my radio, and on guard said, hey, I'm on the ground 200 meters north of the river. Start strafing at 300. I'm headed south. Because I thought if I could get in that river, I could evade mm-hmm. and get picked up out by the Navy. Out. Well, I saw the flight lead uh, after I came home at a pilot, fighter pilot reunion. He said, hey, man, I heard your radio call, but I decided I couldn't shoot that good. I didn't want to hit you. And I said, very wise, <laughs> because they surrounded me and captured me within 90 seconds. <clears throat> yeah, you say in the book, in less than 60 seconds, the militia troops formed a semicircle about 30 yards away and began moving toward me. Survival instructors had taught us the best chance to escape is immediately after capture because frontline soldiers are typically the least trained in handling prisoners. Deciding to try a bluff, I drew my 38 caliber six-shot revolver Smith & Wesson combat masterpiece, which was loaded with two rounds of tracer and three of regular ball ammo. Could these, could these rookies be scared off? I would challenge them and find out. The first three stepped out from chest-high bushes and pointed their rifles at me. I raised my revolver, motioned for them to get back, and fired a tracer round over their heads. Without flinching, they shouldered their rifles and pointed them at me. I, why they didn't cut me down right then, I'll never know. I can only assume God had other plans for my life. <laughs> so you took a crack at these guys with your 38? I'll tell you what. <laughs> How you survived well, that, I have no idea. I just wanted to scare them. I fired it over their head. Tracer, you know. <laughs> and I mean, you know, in the heat of the battle, that's just all I was thinking. Yeah. I mean, please, anyone out there, if you point a weapon at me and you pull the right. trigger. Actually, if you point a weapon at me, you're going right. to die. Exactly. So the fact that you, you, just, you just shot a tracer at these guys to try and scare them off. But they it must miracle. have been there. Clearly, the value of a cap, of a prisoner must have been so high to them, and yep. they knew that, and that's why they said, oh, no, buddy. Right. You're not I getting out that, that easy. Yeah. <clears throat> Continuing on, you say, one of the militiamen pulled, and by the way, I'm reading this book. I'm reading some excerpts. You got to get the book. I'm skipping a bunch of stuff. There's all kinds of awesome details in here of what's going through your mind. Like, you got to get the book. I'm, I'm just trying to uh, give the high, some of the highlights. They're not even all the highlights. just some of the highlights. One of the militiamen pulled out a pamphlet I recognize it as a pointy talkie, a tool of the Vietnamese military devised that showed drawings of American pilots being captured along with Vietnamese phonetics for English commands. Referring to his booklet, he began to shout, hand shop, hand shop, surrender, no die, surrender, no die. Aviators have a number of expressions for being in deep trouble. One of the nicer ones is out of airspeed and ideas. That precisely described my situation. I figured you'd like that one, Dave. Out of airspeed and ideas. Still use it. <laughs> not a good place to be. I tossed aside my pistol, raised my hands, not knowing what to expect. Immediately, my captors grabbed me and began tugging at my survival vest, anti-G suit, and flight suit, The last, my last vestiges of protection. And here's the psychological uh, view of what's going through your mind. Up until the time of surrender, I had operated like a computer calculating and processing at nanosecond speed. My training programs had translated into almost flawless execution, a credit to the military way and those who did the training. 
Now, out of control and with no power, this cool, somewhat cocky fighter pilot felt all alone and very scared. Captured and in enemy hands, what lay in store? Would I be tortured? Killed. The shock of my predicament made the whole affair seem like a dream. I knew this was happening to me, but I also felt like an observer, as if participating in an out-of-body experience. Unfortunately, this nightmare was real, and I would need to adopt a new mindset, a new game face, to fight a different kind of battle, a battle of minds and wills. All you were in enemy hands in 90 seconds from hitting the ground. Yes. Is that just bad luck? How does that even happen? <laughs> that was, uh, that happened quite a bit because usually we're in more populated areas and there were going to be militia or farmers mm-hmm. with farmers came with, you know, axes or shovels or whatever. <clears throat> to capture you. So it, it was good to be captured, but if you're going to be captured, better by the militia than the farmers. Is there is there a massive relief of just survival? I mean, the fact that you made it out of the aircraft that blew up underneath you and now you're on the ground, you got to f- at least feel good that you're alive. Or was that not there? Uh, I guess I was <clears throat> just focused on the moment. I didn't. At that point, if this is just part of my day that I'm kind of dealing with, you know. I wasn't thinking that, I guess, I don't know. Maybe I was thinking I'm glad I'm alive, but that only lasted for a second. Mm-hmm. Now I'm dealing with the realities of what's going to happen next. <clears throat> and, and I suppose that just overshadowed any sort of, like, <laughs> for lack of a better word, celebration that you left. Although you did mention in the book, as you were under canopy, you were kind of looking around like, oh, it's kind of nice up here. You saw the ocean. Hey, if I can get to the ocean. Yeah. And then you heard them yelling and shooting. It, it didn't take but a second. I looked back over and I knew up the river there was disappearing cave because I knew about that. <clears throat> it was a, the river went into the cave and they would hide their sampans and ships, boats, up there at night and during the daytime, and bring them out at night to ferry the ferry boats to ferry these guys across the river, the trucks across the river. So I was looking over that way, and then I looked over here, and there's the ocean. Dong Hoi, the city, was over there. So it was beautiful, but that took about a split second. <laughs> Dave, did you ever grab your ejection handle? Uh, no, the, I I never pulled the, uh, reached for the handle. I thought about it once. Well, uh, what was going on? It was um, just a, a mechanical problem that I had with an airplane. Very similar. It was actually um, in a dive. And it, <clears throat> back up, I don't want to even draw a comparison between what you just described and, and what happened to you in mind. But the feeling of going really fast downhill, I really like the way you described the way the earth comes up is like a telephoto zoom lens as you're rotating that lens, how quickly it comes up. Uh, when things don't work going downhill, you're much more inclined to leave the airplane when things aren't working going uphill. <laughs> and I, God, it's, it's hard to listen to because in my brain, when you say you see the ocean and that airplane, I just wish you just want the airplane to climb up. Even if it's out of power, you just want it to get up into the air and it's such a better place to be. The fact that you're going downhill is such a heartbreaking thing to hear because you have such few options. So... Uh, I guess my answer is yes and no, nothing like that. But that feeling of I got a problem going downhill, you're much more inclined to leave. I remember thinking about it for a split second, going, no, I, I can actually solve this problem, unlike 
your problem is not solvable. Mm-hmm. Uh, but going downhill is not cool when you got a problem. Yeah. <laughs> you ever heard the term ground rush? <laughs> I have heard that term. I, I, I don't, Absolutely. Okay, so in, we we only know, I know it from free fall parachute. Yeah. So it's a thing for pilots as well. Oh, ground yeah. rush. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's like uh, it. Like the the ground is coming, but then all of a sudden it starts coming really fast. Absolutely. The lower you get, the faster it starts coming. I have one uh, parachute cutaway, meaning my main parachute failed, and I had to get rid of that parachute and and pull my reserve parachute. I've it only happened to me one time, uh, and for me it was very mechanical mind. My mind was just, oh, you know, I'm looking at my altimeter, trying to clear the problem. Looking at my altimeter, trying to clear the problem. The parachute's not good. Okay, I'm at the cutaway altitude supposed to be 2,000 feet I got to 1,900 feet I was like yep you need to cut this thing away and I just did it my reserve parachute came out and I was fine uh, very mechanical you know very yeah that's just just robotic you know that's how we were trained that's what I got trained to do that's what I did and do I have this right sir you were in the back seat for this mm-hmm. <laughs> how frustrating was that that you were not flying the airplane um, that sense, I mean, I, I certainly know what it's like to be a fighter pilot. Your description of going backseat F4s is part of the standard continuum to cycle up front. And I'm sure the guy you're with was a great guy, but that uh, pilot in command sense of who's got the controls, um, how much of that were you thinking about in real time, that frustration of, or was there any of you not being the one flying it or you just recognizing no, what's I going didn't, on? it didn't occur to me at all because he was a really good pilot. Yeah. And uh, That's cool. I trusted him and... No problem there, and it all happened so fast. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about second, two seconds at the most. Yeah, yeah. Dave's the single seat fighter for his whole career. Yeah, I, just that that sense of of wanting to be the one making the airplane do what it's supposed to do. I just think it might, for me, and I'm sure it was for you that it sounded like it's much more standard. I, we never had that pipeline, but going in the backseat of an airplane, the one or two times in my career I did it, there was a small sense of I'd really rather be up front. <laughs> Dave Burke has this feeling if you ever go fly on a civilian flight with him, he's frustrated that he's not flying the civilian Burke. Well, I can understand that, <laughs> but you had to, I had to live with what it was, yeah. you know? And, and it's kind of like, in a way, some of the things you said in your previous podcast talking about you know, when you, you, t- you become the boss of your peers – you sorted that out quite well. Well, I had to sort out not being the boss <laughs> right. in this case. Now, and some of the guys I flew with, though, I had to help them fly, I think, a little bit. <laughs> not that they were bad pilots. They just weren't fighter pilots yet uh, that much. But some of the fighter pilots I will, flew with were like you, and they didn't want to give up the stick. <laughs> and I had to almost fight them to say, give me that stick. You know, it's like, you know. They were they were they were uh, <laughs> upset that they had to fly with somebody else in the airplane with had a stick, you know, because right. they had been single seater so long. So we yeah. were friends, but you know, I, one thing about me is I was always pretty able to be straightforward with people in a respectful way most of the time. <laughs> but uh, being I score thirty four on the fast pace impatient side. So being able to confront people has never been a problem. I confronted a four-star general one time. I knew him, and he was a really good guy. And he said, "We, I think we should pull this guy's wings. And I said, General, I don't think so. It would be a mistake. I said, here's A, B, and C. And sure enough, 
The guy went back and flew 141s. In fact, he was the aircraft commander of the 141 that flew my war college class up to Carlisle Barracks to meet with the other war college classes, Navy, Industrial, Army, and Air Force all what, together. What the guy do that was had his wings at stake? That's what I'm saying. He became the aircraft commander. But why was he in trouble? Oh, he was not instructor pilot. He he was there. They, they sent him from a 141 co-pilot to be a T-38 instructor pilot. And he was a good pilot, but he just couldn't fly and talk at the same time and <laughs> catch it all. And I said, I, he's already a trained pilot. I don't think we should take his wings. Mm-hmm. Send him back. And he did. So, But, you know, I didn't mind confronting the front seater if he was doing something I was no way. My life was at stake. Mm-hmm. I would tell some of those guys, roll in now. Don't roll in now. And one of them told me, time, just shut up, boy. <laughs> and I said, okay. <laughs> he was one of the more experienced ones. But, you know, uh, you have to own, take ownership for things, and sometimes you can be wrong. But most of the time, you know you're probably right. <laughs> Uh, all right, I'm going to go back to the book here. Um, fast forward a little bit. Again, you got to get the book for, for the rest of these details, but I'm going to fast forward a little bit. The journey from the southern panhandle of North Vietnam to Hanoi was a long, grueling ordeal. For the first few days, they moved me from, the, from hamlet to hamlet during the daylight. At night, they tied me down to boards and bomb shelters. As I contemplated what suffering might lie ahead, I found encouragement in the words of the Apostle Paul. Quote, we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. On three occasions, American fighter jets flew in low and attacked trucks parked in the trees alongside the road. We took shelter in foxholes and bomb shelters and watched the fireworks, a front row seat to the terrors of war. Foot-long chunks of red-hot shrapnel sometimes landed not more than six feet from me. The sights, sounds, and smells of the bombs and anti-aircraft artillery explosions are indelibly etched in my memory. War attacks the emotions in a way that's impossible to describe and difficult to erase. More threatening than the bombs were the attacks from angry peasants, a mob of old women and teens, furious over the destruction American pilots had wrought, rushed toward me wielding rocks, sticks, and rice-cutting sickles. My young North Vietnamese escort and the guards under his authority formed a cordon and ushered me to safety, even absorbing some of the blows. Several times during the week-long journey north, this soldier saved my life. In following his orders to transport me safely, he displayed a remarkable balance of toughness and kindness, not only to me, but also to his men and to the civilians we met along the way. Strong character is remarkably apparent, even in your enemy. Again, they must have placed a huge level of value on you pilots, on capturing Americans, for this guy to to do such a good job protecting you from the civilians. Yes, they did, but this guy was special. Mm -hmm. I found out because a guy who lives uh, near where I was captured went to the village. He'd gotten to know a lot of the forward air controllers who flew over there, Vietnamese guy. He went to the village, found the person, uh, the wife of that person that we're talking about, Mm -hmm. And he investigated a little bit about this guy. He stayed with the militia. He wasn't uh, 
gung-ho on the communists. And he was known for being tough and a really good man. Hmm. And this woman, because the uh, the bombing out of the road and the we had a hurricane. What do they call them over there? Come through typhoon. Typhoon comes came through, and we had to stay at his place for two nights. And he had moved out of his house with his wife and daughter and his father, and he had dug into the sand dune right away just up the beach, and they were living in a cave. And they took me in that cave, and I slept between his father and his two-year-old daughter, tied up, slept between them in the back of that cave. And at night, when it was time to eat, they saw I couldn't eat with chopsticks, and they brought me a spoon, and I had a (laughs) bowl of rice, and they started talking to me. And they were treating me like I was a really nice fellow and just a visitor to their house, even though most of the time I'm tied up and the guards are right out the front door there. And this guy went back and interviewed that lady, and she told him about me. She said she's speaking Vietnamese, but he has a video of it. And says, oh, yes, I remember him. He was nice. He smiled, and he had eyebrows that went all the way across. (laughs) And they did back then. My eyebrows were solid all the way across. And this woman, she's got, I think she's 82 or 81 or 82. And her daughter, the one that was two years old that slept on one side of me and his father, of course, is dead. But they were wonderful people, and they treated me like I was a guest. And then the next day, he loaded me up and took me off to Ben to the camp up there. But still, he protected me mm-hmm. a couple of times on the way up to Ben because the Communist Party would get the get a they would get a party leader in the local village would get a bullhorn out and he'd get them all fired up, you know. Work harder, suffer more for the fatherland kind of thing. Look what we've done, you know. Ah, 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 ah. And, and he'd get them all fired up, and then they'd come after me. And they got, the guys would, uh, they would get hit sometimes trying to protect me. And one time he had the driver of the truck who we were traveling in. Normally you'd travel in the back, but he had the driver drive up to the door, open the door, push me in it, told the driver to drive on off through the crowd, and the driver's just pushing the crowd back. And one guy jumped up on the hood of the truck and started beating on the windshield, cussing at me, pointing at me, cussing me. Yeah, 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 yeah. And the driver told him to, he's in Vietnamese, get off. He had his hand, get off, get off, get off. The guy didn't do it. The driver just looked over at me and said, oh, well, you know. He started speeding up. And finally, the guy looked over, and he saw how fast he was going. The driver was going, and he jumped off and went rolling down the hill. And the driver kind of looked over at me and grinned. It was just bizarre. My trip to Hanoi was bizarre. That is It's unreal that, you know, nobody, none of the POWs I know had that good protected experience I did. Now, I joined up with some with Miller and Fisher and Warner at Ben, mm-hmm. and from then on, we were the tied up and bouncing along in the back of the truck. But that was special. That was unique. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you end up here um, in the book. You say, my escort deposited me at the collection prison near Vin, which was nothing more than a bamboo pole barn divided into individual cages, each with a pile of straw on the floor for sleeping. Ken had already arrived. So that's the first time you see Ken? Actually, right after I was captured, they took, yeah, the first time I saw him, we were both blindfolded. They took me to a bomb shelter right after I was captured. 
and I heard this guy breathing heavily. <sighs> now, Ken had been a wrestler. He was a New York State wrestling champion and wrestled in college, and so his nose had been smashed. So when he breathed hard, you could hear him. And so I said, is that you, Ken? And the guards went out, had gone outside of that bomb shelter. He said, yeah, you okay? And I said, yeah, you okay? He said, yeah. They came right back in, dragged me out, mm -hmm. and I didn't see him again until we got to Ben. Uh, <clears throat> Lieutenant Colonel Ted Minter and First Lieutenant Jim Warner, whose Marine F-4 Phantom Jet had been shot down a few weeks earlier, were also there. We were kept isolated from each other and fed a small bowl of rice topped by a few greens twice a day. A day or so after my arrival, the camp commander, whom I derogatorily nicknamed Madman, summoned me for my first interrogation. According to the Geneva Convention, captured soldiers are required to provide name, rank, service number, and date of birth. Our code of conduct says that we should resist answering other questions. When I tried to stick with these big four, Madman went berserk. He called me a criminal and threatened to kill me on the spot. After I still refused to answer, he shouted at command in Vietnamese. A nearby guard jammed his AK-47 barrel against my head and chambered around. Still in shock of capture and unsure of how POWs had actually been treated, I decided to talk a bit more. Spying my F-4 aircrew checklist on the table, I admitted that I had been flying the F-4 Phantom out of Da Nang. Madman asked me several more questions about my unit and command structure. I stalled, then gave bogus answers to a couple and did not nose to the rest. That was sufficient to end the interrogation without giving up any meaningful or accurate information other than the big four. The next evening, under the cover of darkness, the V, and this is what this is your shorthand throughout the book for the Vietnamese captors, you call them the V, mm -hmm. shoved the four of us back into the back of a truck. Accompanied by several armed guards, we headed for Hanoi on a bomb crater pocked Route 1A, the primary coastal route from north to south. With blindfold on and hands and feet tied, we crashed up and down on the hard steel truck bed like helpless pigs going to market. Market Words cannot adequately describe the agony of that journey, which was heightened by the mental anguish of knowing that every bounce brought us closer to an uncertain fate in the infamous prisons of Hanoi. Um, you end up there. Our section of the Hanoi Hilton was known to POWs as Little Vegas because most Air Force fighter pilots had done some training at Nellis Air Force Base just outside Las Vegas, Nevada. The various w wings of Little Vegas were appropriately named after some of the popular casino hotels of that era. The Desert Inn, Stardust, Golden Nugget, Riviera, The Mint, and Thunderbird, our cell block. Four men cells were typical, except for The Mint, which had three and a half foot by seven foot rooms used for solitary confinement. Our cell in Thunderbird was six and a half feet wide and seven feet deep, about the size of a small walk-in closet, and had masonry walls 16 inches thick. One wall faced the central courtyard of Little Vegas, and its opposite wall fronted the main hallway. The side walls of our cell had, were separated from the walls of the neighboring cells by narrow hallways, so we could not tap messages through them to other POWs. Camp rules tacked to the inside of our cell made it clear that anyone communicating with another cell would be severely punished. Armed guards constantly patrolled the halls to ensure compliance. 
The heavy door of our cell had an eight inch by 10 inch peephole with a hinged cover which guards occasionally would flip open to threaten us and make sure we were behaving ourselves. There were four beds about 30 inches wide made from two by six boards that were bracketed to two high to the walls on either side of the doorway. The walking space between the bunk beds measured about 18 inches. From the high ceiling hung a single dim light bulb that burned night and day. Iron leg stocks at the foot of the beds gave this dark and depressing cell the ominous feel of a medieval dragon, a medieval dungeon. At least three times a day, seven days a week, the V piped in propaganda through a soapbox speaker, also called camp radio, attached high on one wall. That's a rough, uh, that's, that's, that just sounds awful. Sounds horrible. What are you thinking when you get into this place? You know, I think you're just wondering what's going to happen next. And the fact that I'm with three other guys, I'm a extrovert, outgoing guy, so that was pretty exciting to me to be with three other guys. And I was the youngest guy and the junior ranking guy. So <laughs> I'm thinking, I'm just going to hang on, you know. <clears throat> uh, you go on to say, just before bedtime, Hanoi Hanna, the North Vietnamese version of the in- infamous Tokyo Rose of World War II, shared communist half-truths and outright lies. She typically closed her broadcast each night in a sympathetic and sisterly tone by saying, G.I.s, why should you die 10,000 miles from home? Lay down your arms now and cross over to the people's side. The afternoon broadcasts were especially disheartening because they featured Americans spouting words that could have been written for them in Hanoi or Moscow. Tom Hayden, founder of the Socialist Front Organization Students for a Democratic Society, was a regular speaker. Later in the war, the V welcomed the aid of Hayden's anti-war activist wife, film star Jane Fonda. Isolated in that tiny cell, the four of us had plenty of time to get to know each other. Captain Fisher told us how he had endured brutal torture during his initial interrogation back at Vin to avoid answering any questions beyond the big four. At Madman's command, guards had tied his arms behind his back, tossed a rope over a high beam, and pulled Ken's arms up behind, lifting him until he was suspended with the weight of his body pulling and tearing at the muscles, ligaments, and nerves in his shoulders. A star collegiate wrestler at New York State High School and New York State High School re- champion, Ken was mentally and physically one of the toughest men I'd ever known. But eventually the pain transformed him into a screaming idiot. As we all learned to do so, he had to fall back on to the second line of resistance. At times, some POWs prayed for death as a relief, but the V, who were experts at torture, rarely obliged. Upon hearing Ken's story, I felt embarrassed and immature. He had suffered so much trying to follow the strict letter of the code while I had given in after threats and a rifle jab to the head. When I shared my interrogation encounter with him, he said with sincere kindness, you did the best you could under the circumstances. We ended up at the same place, giving them something that was nothing. That experience gave me a glimpse of the character of this man who would be a cellmate and inspirational leader for the next five years. Yeah, that that little piece of leadership right there, you know, uh, here's this guy that withstood this, I mean, the description, 
horrible torture. And you tell them, hey, I, I, but they put a gun in my head and I told them, you know, to get, you know, I told them some information. And he just looked at it and he said, yeah, you did the best you could. That, that, that had to have left an impact on you with, that, with him as an individual and him as a leader. It did. You know, and then the next time <clears throat> we got tortured, <clears throat> uh, was the same thing. He went a lot longer than I did. <laughs> I went a lot longer than somebody else did. Uh, you know, because Ken didn't have any experience with any of the other POWs who had been there, uh, he was a very level-headed guy and just a great leader. You know, he was a really good thinker. And even some of the things that he did after we came home, like one time, he had two squadron commanders when women first started flying in the Air Force, and one of them was in charge of the flying squadron, the other one in charge of the student squadron. And they weren't handling the flying squadron very appropriately with the women there. And so Ken realized that he needed to do something. And he didn't fire them. He switched them. He put the guy in running the student squadron in charge of the flying squadron and the guy in charge of the flying squadron in charge of the student squadron and they both did great and they both got promoted to colonel and it was just a brilliant move of how he saw what the situation was and what would be the best solution and I think in in the POW situation he was a great example and you know, I didn't have the choice of being put in the ropes or being hung by the ropes like he was in that case. My situation was, uh, you know, was death mm-hmm. <laughs> in my case. And I think he saw that. You know, I didn't know that they wouldn't kill me. Why wouldn't they? You know? Mm-hmm. So um, I think he took all that into account in a really good way. But he realized probably at that point that I probably needed to be more confident. And when leaders are able to help their people believe that they let them know they believe in them, they become more effective and more confident. And next time, they're going to come through stronger. Mm-hmm. So that's a really important leadership point. And I've been very fortunate in my life growing up in high school, uh, college days, and in the military. I've had leaders that believed in me. I wouldn't be where I am today if I hadn't have leaders that believed in me and uh, and helped me become the person I am today. So I just think it's – he said he showed me that in a great example there. And, of course, later he relieved uh, Lieutenant Colonel of Command in that cell. Yeah. So yeah. he was um, just very wise, not perfect. It, I remember after a few months and I finally decided – well, he's not perfect. I can forgive him for that. But for a while, I thought he was just perfect. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a question we get asked a lot is, you know, how can I get this individual to step up into a leadership and start becoming a leader? Put him in a leadership position. When you put someone in a leadership position, you're telling them, hey, I believe you should be in this leadership mm-hmm. position. I believe that you can lead. And guess what they start doing? They start acting like a leader. Most of the time, occasionally you'll get someone that's not ready for right. it or they, have, they don't have the right attitude yet, but oftentimes you just take someone, a junior individual, and say, hey, I want you to run this operation or I want you to run this project, and they, they see that you believe in them and that makes them believe in themselves. It's a, it's a good move. You know, speaking of this uh, relief 
we'll get into this because I think it's an important, uh, important and bold move that happens here. So there's a guy named Lieutenant Colonel Minter, and it's actually not his real name. It's a, a made-up name to uh, be gentle, I guess, with the situation. Well, he had five sons, and I thought that when I wrote that book, I yeah. wrote that for his sons. I didn't want to put his name there. Right. So Lieutenant Colonel Minter was summoned to more interrogations than the rest of us. That seemed natural at first. As the senior ranking officer SRO in our room, he was potentially the highest value target for exploitation. But over time, we realized that Minter's views were not aligned with our ours or the policy of our government. A soldier has the obligation to do his best to uphold the code of conduct, which in, includes resisting exploitation by the enemy. What might be acceptable for a civilian back home in our free society is totally out of line for a military person, especially a POW. One day, Minter came back from an interrogation with pencil and paper and began writing an extensive description of the organization responsibilities of a Marine air wing. We cautioned him that his cooperation was a violation of the code of conduct, but he said he didn't see any problem. Later, when he was called out of the room for an interrogation, we looked at the paper and saw that it contained information that appeared accurate and of value to the enemy, a clear breach of the code. Captain Fisher, as the next senior officer in the cell, told Lieutenant Warner and me that he felt compelled to remove Lieutenant Colonel Minter from command. He asked if we agreed. It is a very serious and risky step for a captain to relieve a lieutenant colonel of command. If competent authority did not support Ken's action, he would likely face a court-martial for insubordination. We also risked court-martial for our involvement, but we knew Ken was right, so we gave him our wholehearted support. When Minter returned to the room, Ken said, your willing cooperation with the enemy in writing this paper is a violation of the code of conduct. I am removing you from command and ordering you to destroy that document and cease cooperating with the enemy. If you disobey these orders, I will personally seek a court-martial against you after the war. (laughs) That's freaking awesome. (laughs) Uh, Minter said he did not believe the code of conduct applied in this case because we were not in a declared war. In his opinion, everyone was free to do as he saw fit. That was a shockingly irresponsible attitude for a military officer. Only a few months previous, he had told friends that he hoped to make general. Now his comments made him look like a selfish survivor who would forsake his beloved corps, his friends, his roommates, and even his country to save his hide. That evening, Lieutenant Colonel Minter ripped up the document and threw it in the waste bucket, but his behavior over the subsequent years indicated that he never had a change of heart. So that's a bold, that's a bold move to make. You're, the, you're more junior than the, than the senior officer, and you say, hey, you're not in charge anymore. I am. And by the way, I'm going to court-martial you after the war if you resist this. Yeah, it takes courage. And believing, you know, it was obvious what was right. And there was enough evidence for him to make that decision. And so uh, he courageously stood up and did it. And that's the kind of guy Ken was. So I had this courageous role model living with 24 hours a day actually for five years in fact we've been home a couple of years and he'd only been married for two and a half years when he was captured and his wife we were his wife and him and my wife and i were at a social event and she came up and says lee ellis i want you to know i've lived him with with ken fisher longer than you have now <laughs> But he was a great cellmate and um, a real – he helped me mature. 
you know, I I needed maturity in lots of different ways, and watching him, learning from him, helped me to grow and to be the person that I needed to be. And so I got tougher. <clears throat> I got wiser. Uh, and uh, I would say uh, I don't know to what degree – you know, I would say this, but my own courage grew. I thought I was pretty courageous, but I think it I gained courage mm-hmm. because I knew what I wanted to do. I wanted to live up to the code of conduct and be a good American and be faithful to my teammates, do my job. And so I was willing to take risk. I was a pretty good risk taker. I'm in the camp. I was found it easy to take risks in communicating and things like that because I know I'm good at it. So I figure I can do it and get away with it. <laughs> so they brought this uh, three-page biography questionnaire for us to fill out, and uh, we filled it out and put name, rank, service, number, date of birth, except for a mentor who filled it in. And then they hauled the other three of us out uh, to interrogate and threaten us. It was funny because they had a new interrogator there and he came in and he would say I don't want to I don't want to hurt you I don't want to bother you but you you're a good person you should do this and be all right you know da, 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 da. he was a nice guy okay and then we say no and then the bad guy comes in we're going to torture you and they would go back and forth for an hour or two and then when I, we didn't fill it in so then we they put us in uh, handcuffs and tied our feet and uh, put us on our knees up against the wall with our hands over our head, which, you know, no big problem. But after six or eight hours, <laughs> you start falling over, and then they start coming in and start kicking you and beating you, and you get back up, and after six or eight more hours, you've been up and down and been kicked and beaten and all of this. So finally, after, uh, I don't know, the next day, probably 36 hours, I decided, well, I'm going to give in. I'm going to give them something. It ain't going to be nothing, but I'm going to. And so I told them I would do it. And I filled in the three pages, and everything on it was a lie except for my dad's first and last name. And uh, everything else was just made up. You know, education, money, what, everything was just totally made up. Well, I get back to the room, and uh, I wasn't the first one back. But after a while, but, but when I did that, when I did that, when I agreed to do it, I laid there and cried. I was so sad because I was not tough enough to beat him. I felt so ashamed. I felt like the most worthless piece of crap that had ever worn a uniform because I wasn't able to beat him. My duty was to beat him, and I couldn't beat him. Now, I didn't give him anything, but the fact that I'd filled it in that was the first time I'd ever really come to grips with the reality that at some point, uh, you know, you got to fall back to a second round. Now, I did, when they put, put the gun to my head earlier, I had, but that was a little different mm-hmm. than just being tortured and being painful, uncomfortable, and being uh, beaten and kicked and all that. And then when you got back to how did Ken Fisher do? Well— uh, he came back too, and he said he had done the same thing, but he was three or four hours longer than me. <laughs> he survived, so he was tougher than me. 
And then I'm laughing because that's like, you know, in the SEAL teams, you know, everyone's always competing with everybody else. And oh, here yeah. you guys are competing to see who could take horrible exactly. torture longer. Exactly. And um, so the, when, as quick as we got communication, though, we found out that everybody had been through it and done the same thing. Everybody had filled out that biography. So then I thought, well, I guess I'm not quite as worthless as I thought. But Ken was good about it, too. Again, he helped me understand that he didn't go much longer than I did, and he had done it, too, but we didn't give him any information. Yeah. Uh, given a, a little bit more about your life there, um, the, for the first two years, the feeling of hunger never left us. Food was the most popular topic of conversation, especially when it was cold and our bodies needed more calories just to stay warm. Upon awakening in the winter months, I would realize I had been dreaming about walking down a cafeteria line, selecting a breakfast of eggs, bacon, sausage, toast, orange juice, and coffee. But in reality, our typical meal was a bowl of thin, greasy vegetable soup accompanied by either a cup of rice or an eight-inch baguette of bread. We joked that the menu had lots of variety. It changed three times a year. Since the V cooked outside in big pots, small bugs and white worms would regularly drop into the soup from overhanging trees. Every August, weevils would hatch in the flour so the bread would be peppered with black buggers. Having nothing better to do one afternoon, I counted 44 in one cubic inch of bread. There were too many to pick out, so we just ate them, figuring they were a good source of protein. Winters in Hanoi were surprisingly cold with temperatures often in the low 40s Fahrenheit, sometimes lower. The chilly air blowing in through our barred open window covered only with a rattan mat made our unheated cell feel like an icebox. It was also cold because our meager rations provided insufficient energy to stay warm through the long nights. We survived by putting every bit of clothing we owned, two pairs of thin pajamas and a cotton sweater, and wrapping ourselves in our blanket. For the first two years, we had no socks, so our feet never got warm in the winter. The POW experience produced severe mental and emotional stress. Hour after hour, we found ourselves battling an army of oppressive feelings. From fear about what might happen to us, to anger at our captors for the way they treated us, to disappointment for being shot down, to guilt for leaving our families in the lurch and in the dark. Maintaining a positive mental outlook was crucial to survival. Military leaders expect life to be difficult, yet they tend to be optimistic about their ability to succeed, their capability to succeed. They are trained to make the best of the situation by solving problems instead of stewing about them, and they place a high value on cohesive teamwork. Fortunately, that's the kind of leadership we had in Hanoi. A few of our buddies who had more pessimistic temperaments, occasionally needed extra measures of encouragement from the rest of us. In return, they frequently contributed a healthy, healthy dose of realism that balanced our optimism with objectivity and discipline. Vice Admiral James Bond Stockdale insightfully captured the importance of this dynamic tension in what Jim Collins called the Stockdale Paradox. Quote, you must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end, which you can never afford to lose, with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they might be. Yeah, that's a, just a critical way of thinking, right? Having the positive mindset that we can overcome whatever this challenge is, but 
not being Pollyanna and and saying, oh yeah, we'll be fine. No, there's gonna be struggles and we have to face our reality for what it is. Yeah, I think so. It was very, very important. You know, I remember I was shot down November 67. In early 68, I said, you know, there's gonna be an Olympics in Mexico City this summer. We'll be home because I knew that President Johnson really would have to do something with the war to get reelected. That was my thinking. I didn't know it, but that was my thinking. I said, they will end this war and we'll be home by the summer. I'm going to go to Mexico City and go to the Olympics. Well, July comes and I moved to Sante. and <laughs> still there. And I said, well, I've made it seven months. I can make it for another year. Well, that was one more year, the summer of 69. I said, I can make it two more years. But it was really three, <laughs> three and a half. So, you know, you, the POWs, it became our way of life. And uh, the fact that we had great leadership, the fact that we did get communication, we communication, communicated covertly, but we were able to fight as a team with a common enemy and to care about each other and look after each other. We would risk our lives to get to somebody and say, man, we're proud of you. Hang in there. We ain't leaving without you. So it was this, uh, the leadership, the teamwork, and the commitment of our leaders, that they, they got tortured all the time. And they would do things much worse than we were, we were doing, actually, but they would bounce right back and come back because they did the best they could. And they bounced back and they put out good policies and they live by them. Uh, it was an amazing experience. That's why I wrote that book, is I think that just the, the principles that we learned and lived by there are good everywhere, you know? Yeah, no, and no doubt about the, it. And, and <clears throat> the, here's the thing about it. You couldn't hide. You couldn't pretend because Somebody was going to be watching you 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. There was no way you could hide anything, so you just confessed it all up front. And and I think there's a pride piece in, you know, confessing, coming back to the cell and saying, I did fill out that three-page biography, but I didn't tell them anything honest, nothing real, no true facts except for my dad's name. But it was still painful at times. But I think we realized that that was a way of life. Yeah, the, there's you, you capture some of that in here. Um, you say when you are at the mercy of an enemy who has the po- who has the power to force you to do things against your will, the psychological impact can be unimaginably depressing and debilitating. His goal is to break you, and you must constantly fight to maintain your self-respect and optimism. Most of us did this in two primary ways. First. We fought to maintain our belief in ourselves and our competency by resisting the enemy and exercising our autonomy at every opportunity. In order to demonstrate that our lives still had worth and we were not just helpless, we had to find ways to get our licks in, often using tricks and subtle acts of rebellions as weapons. Subtle acts of rebellion as weapons. Every time a POW outsmarted the V, no matter how trivial the incident, the other POWs were encouraged and emboldened. (laughs) <laughs> and I really like that idea, you know, in uh, the modern era of working out, of lifting weights and, and doing workouts, they have 
something they call scalable workouts, meaning, oh, if we're going to do uh, a, a weightlifting exercise, if we're going to deadlift, and I can deadlift 300 and you can deadlift 500, we both do the workout, but I'm just lifting less weight than you, but we're still both going to go and do our best. And I wrote down here a note that said scaled victories because any it's like anything that you could do to just get a shot at the V was like a victory that y'all could celebrate. And, yeah. and that's so good for morale. And the fact that the fact that you you know you've got all kinds of jokes in here. I mean, you, you guys would fill out information, and you know it'd be the the Lieutenant Clark Kent was the was the person you talk about. Uh, just all these like jokes that you that you would play, or every time someone would sneeze, or there was a guy that would sneeze that would sneeze. You know, every one of his sneezes would be oh shit. Yeah, you know, yeah. and everyone would hear it. All you guys would hear it. Uh, there was a guy that had to you know talk about the. When they talk about Ho Chi Minh, they call him Ho Chi Minh, mm-hmm. you know. So, uh, Lieutenant Paul Galante, you know, he's he's in this. He's getting forced to take a picture, a propaganda picture, and in the picture, you can see he's he's got his middle fingers up on both hands. And uh, I've got this. At some point in my life, I'm going to get all these well certain black and white photos that mean a lot to me hung up. And that's one of those photos I'm going to put up there. It's just, you can see him. It says neat and clean. I don't know why they have that word up there, but they have neat and clean above him on the wall. And he's sitting there and he's having his photograph taken. And you look at his hands and he's flipping off the camera, both fingers. And those were little victories, little scaled victories that you guys had to, to keep the positive attitude even when... Things are horrible. Yeah, you have to you have to find a way to fight back and keep and doing fighting back in that way gave us some victories and made us feel like, well, you know, they may be in control, but we still controlled some things. And that that made everybody feel good. It made the individual feel good and uh, it just became a way of life. We're gonna look for ways to make them look bad and us look good. You know, they're the enemy. You were able to do it a lot. Uh, You know, in the book, after you talk about that, that torture that you went through for the document, you go in there and you you talk about John McCain. And, you know, just a powerful story about John McCain. And at one point, you know, they're trying to get him, you know, his dad's an admiral. They're trying to use him as a propaganda piece. They're torturing him. But not only are they torturing him, what even might be more effective is they're saying, hey, you can go home early. Mm-hmm. They're saying, hey, you, you should go home. They tell him that the president's telling him to go home. They're just trying to get him to break ranks. Right. And at one point, uh, he he's like answering as loud as he can so that everyone can hear. He's saying, I'm not going home. I'm, I'm not going home until it's my turn. How how impactful was that for you guys to hear? Well, it was huge because, you know, when to think about going home when you're a POW, I mean, that's a hard place to be put in. You know, he had <sighs> wife and kids back home. His father was an admiral. He had been had broke arm, both arms were broken when he was captured, when he jumped out of the airplane. The injury from the ejection was so bad he couldn't even feed himself so he'd been through a lot of suffering but for him to yell out you know it was it was a it was a double whammy 
because in one way he's saying to the guys, I'm with you guys. In the other way, he was saying to the enemy, I ain't going to do what you want me to do. So it was a double whammy, and it was very powerful, very powerful. And, you know, he was always kind of a quick thinker to make trouble. That was part of his <laughs> Wasn't reputation. he, like, last at the Naval Academy in his I class so, or something yeah. like this? And and I was reading a, his story. Uh, it's being written right now, his first marriage, about that story and all. And he was always uh, kind of a wild and woolly guy, you know. So he, he played that role there. He was courageous but also willing to take some risk. Yeah, there's something about the guys that are going to go fight in war. And there's a decent chance that if you want to dedicate your life to going and fighting wars, there's a decent chance you might not be the best follower of rules. You know, that's just the way it is. Uh, you, You might be a little bit, have a tendency, you know, I talk about the SEAL teams, like there's a, there's like a criminal element to your brain for a lot of guys in the SEAL teams. Just, hey, what do you want to do? What do you want to do when you grow up? I want to go and shoot machine guns at people. Mm-hmm. That's not a normal thing to be thinking. Right. So you got these guys, you got, you know, it's like, a, it's like a good attack dog, right? A good attack dog you don't want as a family dog, right? You don't want them, you don't want an attack dog in your house. You want them on the battlefield, but you don't want them in your house, or you don't right. want them in your neighborhood. Right. You can have them really, really well-trained. Then you can have one in your house, maybe, but you still gotta watch it. So, you know, if you get a guy like McCain, who's the, the last in his class at the Naval Academy and, you know, has, an, has a reputation for kind of causing problems, that's exactly the kind of guy you want in these cases. Yeah, it was, um, we needed all different kinds of people there. But we were all similar in a lot of ways. Because you can't go through flight school, you know, physically, mentally, go through all the requirements of flight school, go through the training, and then become a fighter pilot uh, without having something similar to the other people. In fact, uh, there's a book I I have, I brought with me today. I wish I uh, showed you that. But there are five categories of similarities between fighter pilots, and one of them is that they are they're very aggressive and risk takers, but they're also affiliative. They like to be around people so they can tell their war stories <laughs> too, you know? And so it, it, made a, it made a good team, the fact that we were team players, but we were also capable of operating on our own and being confident about going and executing a mission. Uh, I think that was consistent. Our guys were willing to take risk, and uh, yet they wanted to be together. And take care of each other. Mm-hmm. It didn't. It wasn't okay to be not concerned about your teammates. Yeah, no. It's uh, when people ask me what makes a good seal, it's a very easy answer to give. It's the the one that's going to take care of his team and put put the team ahead of himself. Yeah, that's that's a good seal. Yeah. Uh, you give a really cr- crazy and horrific description of um, who is it? Reisner. Lieutenant mm-hmm. Colonel Ra- Robbie Reisner, yeah, and he had like a picture, a, a picture of his family or something, and and they the V wanted it to use it for propaganda. He he ripped it up and threw it in the bottom of the of the of the shit can that you had in the in the cell, and so they are 
they want to get this picture so they torture him here you go go into the book here in an effort to force him to produce the photos the guards severely beat robbie and put him through rope torture the ropes or pretzel as it was some sometimes called was a terrifying and brutal method for breaking pow's after the prisoner's legs were tied together his arms were laced tightly behind his back until the elbows touched and the shoulders were virtually pulled out of joint then the torturer would push the bound arms up and over the head while applying pressure with a knee to the victim's back during torture the circulation is cut off and the limbs go to sleep but the joint pain continues to increase as the ligaments and muscles tear when the ropes are finally removed circulation surges back into the dead limbs causing excruciating pain when the v eventually learned what reisner had done with the photos they furiously inflicted more torture upon robbie until he agreed to sign a confession and an apology for committing, quote, grave crimes. Under such severe torture, no POW could resist signing, signing these four statements. We took some comfort in the fact that they invariably sounded phony because they were dictated by the V using awkward sentence structure and expressions that no American would use. Sometimes they were so ridiculous that they made the V look foolish. After torture, the guards boarded up the window in Reisner's cell, making it so dark that he couldn't see the walls. Robbie had never been afraid of the dark, but he immediately began to have panic attacks. In later describing this episode, he said, it was as if I had an animal on my back. Absolute panic set in. The fact that I could not control this thing driving me caused me to be even more panic-stricken. Sheer desolation permeated the miserable dark cell I lived in 24 hours a day. Reisner's only relief was to keep moving and praying. He would walk around his cell, often covering as many as 20 miles a day, and do push-ups and sit-ups until he was exhausted enough to fall asleep. If he awakened during the night, he had to resume exercising until he was again exhausted enough to sleep. It was a maddening existence. At times he wanted to scream, but since that would bring more torture, he would hide under his mosquito net, stuff something in his mouth, wrap his blanket around his head, and just holler until the anxiety eased. Often he had to talk himself into making it through one more minute, and then one more minute. As he put it, quote, I literally lived one minute at a time. After 10 months of darkness, the night finally passed. In June 1968, the V removed Robbie into the goat moved Robbie into the golden nugget section of Little Vegas. From our cell about 40 feet away, we heard him moaning and screaming in nightmares throughout the first night. The next day when Robbie's shutters were opened, I saw his tired but smiling face for the first time. During siesta, while the guards were generally less alert, Reisner and I made contact. Over the next few days, he shared his story in basic guidance by writing with his index finger on his open palm one letter of the alphabet at a time. It was clear that he had a lot of fight left in him. His courage served as an inspiration for the rest of us in the months and years ahead. I mean, solitary confinement is one thing, but solitary confinement in complete darkness for 10 months. 300 days. And the first time you see him, he's got a smile on his face. He looked like an old, old man. He was 44 or so by that time, but he looked in his 60s. He was so wrinkled and pitiful looking, but he smiled, and I could tell he was exercising, and uh, it was just amazing, you know. He was positive. 
You know, he, I use, when I'm speaking, I use three of our senior leaders, Reisner, Stockdale, and Denton, as an example. And they were all different personalities. Stockdale was a very introverted, uh, results, mission-focused guy, stoic. Denton was a very outgoing politician kind of guy. And Reisner had some of both. He was, you know, kind of a mixture of that 20% of the population had some of both. But Reiser was just an incredible uh, guy. He was so honest, and uh, he was the senior ranking officer there, except for when we had some three colonels captured in late 1967, but they kept them isolated from, from us. So Reiser was the acting commander of all. Denton was, I mean, uh, Stockdale was the senior naval officer. But these three guys, they supported each other, and they just provided a great example. Uh, Reisner had incredible ability to bounce back and be positive and do the shameful things he did, like take all that torture and then write that confession or whatever it was and then bounce back again. Yeah, and and, and part of it, you know, when, when you talked about this, um, taking ownership when you do something and the fact that you say, hey, look, this is what I went through and this is what I did, and, and the fact that everyone just kind of was honest with each other. You know, I've always told people when you take ownership of something, it, it's like uh, overcoming an obstacle, but once you get on the other side, you go, oh, feel so much better. Mm-hmm. You know, you get caught in a lie, you're making something up, you're not telling your parents the truth, you're not telling your team the truth about what's going on. You feel that heavy burden. And the minute you say, hey, listen, everybody, I gotta talk to you. The plan that I came up with, it's not working and we need to change it. Like no. it's so liberating to do that. Yep. And and you know, I often talk about, you know, if you want to get through some trauma that you've been through, you gotta own it and say, Hey, this is what I did, here's what I think I should have done. You know, when you're in combat, things happen in combat. You know, a lot of veterans suffer from this. You're in combat, things don't go the way you want them to go. Yeah. And you look at it and say, hey, this is what I think I could have done better. This, I should have made this move. I should have moved left instead of right or right instead of left or whatever the case may be. That, I think, helps you get through these things. And it seems like that helps so many people in the camp, both when it's happening, right after it happens, and then you know, I'm sure we'll talk about it, the way that you all came back. I talked about it with, with Charlie Plum and, and William Reeder as well. Psychologically, for the absolute hell you all had lived through psychologically you were actually you actually were were did great in comparison and i think a lot of that in my my assessment as i look at it now had to do with the fact that you all took ownership of what you did you you took ownership of your limitations right hey i can only take so much of this and i signed that paper yeah you know i think it uh, it really did help us to be okay with ourselves gave us actually more confidence in the long run of dealing with things uh and the other thing that happened was the fact that we lived together you couldn't hide things you know Mm -hmm. people are going to see you you can it's going to come out (laughs) and so we knew that and so therefore it just we lived totally transparently completely transparently with each other and so it was a, that made us really so much stronger and healthier. It increased our teamwork and our trust for each other because if something went bad, we knew we'd find out right away. 
And, um, of course, then being locked up like that, and, and we can talk about this later, but I want to make sure to mention it now, is that because of what the wives and families did back home, they got our torture stopped in late 69 and early 70. It changed the policy of the U.S. government, changed the policy of the communist government. And so everybody in the world was putting pressure on them about our treatment. And so when Ho Chi Minh died in September 69, as soon as they quit celebrating his funeral and the new leaders came in, they started rearranging the treatment. And so the last three years we were there, it was more live and let live. And we had time to decompress and get over our trauma with people who had been through worse than we had. So I'm feeling bad about what I went through, but you've been here two years longer, and you were tortured with the ropes three times, and I didn't go through the ropes. <laughs> and now I can't feel bad about what has happened to me. i got to feel bad about what happened to you. And we, we got so much healthier that POW uh, PTSD – it's like 4%. Yeah, POW, POW uh, PTSD is much lower than combat veterans because we had people to talk through who had been through worse than we had for years, locked up with them 24 hours a day. Mm-hmm. See, we didn't just get on the airplane and come home, and your buddy's dying over here today, and tomorrow you fly back home and you're having dinner with your family, mm-hmm. and you're thinking about the trauma of that. Is that we had a totally different situation, so we came home very, very healthy in, in because of that and because of many other things we did while we were there. Mm-hmm. You talk about Reisner uh, here. You say Reisner's first camp – First stint as Camp SRO did not last long. The V found a written note that contained his guidance and connected it back to him, determined to squelch his leadership in the camps. They pulled Reisner out of the zoo camp in Hanoi and returned him to Heartbreak Hotel in the Hanoi Hilton and began extensive torture to break him. Because the process for selecting SRO leaders was clearly established, Commander Jerry Denton, the next ranking officer at the zoo, immediately stepped into the line of fire. As part of the dramatic change in treatment in the fall of 1965, the V were now torturing men to extract propaganda statements. Denton reaffirmed Reisner's policy and added, no writing, no taping, take torture until you're in danger of losing mental faculties and then give a phony story. Die before giving classified information. If broken, don't despair. Bounce back as soon as you can to the hard line. Remember, unity above self. Denton's simple motto of unity above self provided a strong cultural bond for all of us, even when we were isolated or shuffled from one camp to another. When Denton's strong leadership became evident to the V, they ushered him off to the torture chamber, followed by solitary confinement. Fortunately, James Bond came to the rescue. James Bond Stockdale, that is. Bouncing back from one of his extended periods of abuse and solitary confinement, he took command from his cell in Little Vegas, Thunderbird cell block in the spring of 1967. One of his first tasks was to update the policies previously disseminated by Reisner and Denton using the clever acronym Back Us. And so here you go through the, ac- the, anacro- the acronym back us. B, bowing. Resist bowing in public in front of outsiders. Make the V use force. And this was because the, the Vietnamese, that was a show of respect, so we're not doing it. Air. A, air. Stay off the air. Make no recordings for radio and no tapes. 
C, crimes, don't admit to any crimes. K, kiss, don't kiss the enemy goodbye. If POWs were released, Stockdale did not want them to be overly generous in their comments on the way out. And the last is, is us. Unity over self, stay united, take care of each other. The big three, Reisner, Stockdale, and Denton established the code of conduct as the goal while recognizing that not even the toughest men had been able to live up to a purely literal interpretation. Over time, a somewhat loose, tight culture evolved. It provided strong, clear guidelines, yet allowed each cell SRO and even each individual to exercise some judgment in dealing with various situations. These goals and expectations empowered a common cultural mindset that allowed us to operate with unity across half a dozen camps over a period of several years, whether we were in solitary confinement or locked in large cells. When there was disagreement about local interpretation, we had discussions that sometimes turned into passionate arguments before decisions were made. When necessary, SROs changed or adapted policies as a result of lessons learned. So, this is just a, you know, I, one of the laws of combat that Dave and I talk about a lot, it's in extreme owners, it's all, we, we talk about all the time, is decentralized command. And this, this decentralized command, where this solid guidance came out, and it allowed everybody in prison camps, in 12 different camps, the frontline person may not communicate with anybody for, for extended periods of times, but they understand what the goal is, and they can all move in the right direction towards that strategic goal. And they even know there's flexibility in that, in the way that they get there. This is a very powerful lesson here. Yeah, it is. You know, uh, the new chief of staff of the Air Force is pushing that right now is to set the boundaries, the big picture boundaries, and let people at the lower levels operate. And I think he sees that. But, yes, it was powerful for us because communication was hard. We were separated. We were moved different places, different camps. They were always – they'd pull out some people in one camp and move them to another camp and – for various, you know, any time you have a bureaucracy, they make decisions up there. The communists were the same. We can never could figure out some of their moves. But the reality was that we understood what our mission was, what our goals were, and what the 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 few boundaries and rules that we needed. And within that, we're going to go for it. Yeah, a good example of that is you you talking here about receiving care packages which mm-hmm. you were occasionally allowed to receive these care packages was that from your families or something these yeah care they packages? weren't care they were like packages from family yeah like so that. your first one that you get you know you had to apply this these principles because in it you had to make you in order to get the package and this package is like I mean, heaven sent for all practical purposes. It could have food, it could have clothes, it could have, I mean, just not to mention communication from your loved ones. Mm -hmm. And yet they wanted you to sign something, some kind of confession. Uh, It was uh, basically a a paper, a little one pager that said in, in accordance with their lenient and humane policy. And that was too much for you. Too much. And so you decided, no, don't want the package. Yep. And then next time, another package came and they actually removed that statement no more statements never had one again and you got you took your package yep what was in the package oh uh, <laughs> let's see there was some coffee and there was some candy and uh there were some socks nice <laughs> that's what i wanted some socks uh 
Maybe a piece of fruit cake. Beautiful. Just little things like that. I was on deployment, and uh, you know, my wife. I, my wife's at home with three kids. They're all under the age of like six, so it's like six, four, and two. I mean, she's just overwhelmed, and so she's not worried about me. I'm overseas. Like she's got bigger, she's got bigger problems to solve on a daily basis. And you know, guys in the platoons are getting their packages from their wives and from their parents and stuff. You know, big, nice, beautiful packages. Finally, like three months into deployment, I get a package from <laughs> from my wife, and it's got I like honey roasted peanuts, mm-hmm. and so, or and so there's a there's a little can of honey roasted peanuts, but they'd already been opened, <laughs> half eaten, and they were taped back shut. And I said, like, "God bless her; she's doing the best she can." <laughs> you know, oh. she, she, one of the kids got into it or whatever, yeah. so she said, "I'll throw some tape on it; we'll be all right." <laughs> yeah. You got to give them credit. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Like I said, I she was dealing with three little kids and yep. not not worried about definitely not worried about me. Um We talked a little bit about communication and the importance of communication and the communication, I mean, we're 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 sitting here talking about it, you know, about you. They're putting out word and and how the information you knew this person and respected this person and you got guidance and all these things are happening. This is all happening in the most restrictive imaginable communication environment. And so I'm gonna go to the book here. You say, it would be safe to say that in the early early years in small cells, 50% of our waking hours were spent in covert communications. Later in larger cells, fewer people were needed, and with our newer technologies and a less threatening environment, communications were much more efficient. Over the years, we used tap code, hand code, flash code, Morse code, cough, hack, spit code, sweeping code, voices through the walls, notes over the walls, notes under the doors, and more. Because they knew it was our primary tool for resistance, the V tried hard to stop us, but they never could. Because of our poor treatment, now I'm gonna fast forward a little bit. So you had all these different methodologies for communicating. Mm-hmm. And the fact that you, you 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 mentioned this in here, um, you got this tap code, the the matrix, the five, 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 five matrix. by five matrix, which is a way of communicating. And when I was a young SEAL, I was a radio man, and we had to learn Morse code. And I was probably pretty close to the point where I could kind of do it without thinking about it, but I never quite got there. But you know, you're talking in the book at at some point you could just do it. I mean, it was like without thinking. The letter A was just you could immediately just get it done. Yeah. And there was a whole group of you that could that could communicate on this high level with these tap codes, and that's how all this information was passed. It's just an incredible story. And. That tap code, tapping through to somebody on the other side of the wall, especially in the early years where there were a couple of guys in solitary confinement and had gone through torture and all, it was like uh, it was the most incredible thing to keep them uh, motivated, inspired, connected, emotionally, uh, mentally going. And, you know, in fact, one guy was in solitary confinement and he wanted to know about uh, he wanted to, he wanted to know about Shakespeare so some guys next to him knew of some stuff, Shakespeare stuff and 
and they got them all the through, gave them all they could remember, and then they just made it up <laughs> because they didn't want to tell him we don't right. know anymore. So whatever it was, we were going to share it and uh, make it interesting. Guys would uh, share all sorts of information. I remember I w- at times, you know, you, you're in a cell with four or five guys, like I was out at Sante. And so you know them, you've been locked up with them for a while, and so you get off on your own project. So one time I farmed for two months, <laughs> and there was a farmer from uh, Kansas living next door, Leroy Stutz. And so I got whenever I needed a question answered about farming, I wasn't quite sure about. It. I'd ask through the wall. I would ask Leroy, and he would tell me what a uh, how many feet of barbed wire were in a roll of barbed wire. Okay, and how much a roll of barbed wire normally costs, and then I'd go back and calculate. So I was fencing in a, a 120 acres of farm there that day. So you go through doing all these kind of things, and one time, another time, I was going to be a lawyer when I went home. I was just decided, okay, what if I want to do something different? I'll be a lawyer. And it took me a month. And, I mean, I would think for this for hours every day. So I had to find out more about different kinds of law. So I'd ask the guys questions. And so finally I decided I'd be a, a tax lawyer, and I'd go to the University of Virginia. <laughs> and but all this was done through But tapping. some of this was going back. You know, I was finding a lot. So much was tap code, and then we rolled up the uh, blankets, and we could talk through it because a blanket would be a muffler, mm-hmm. like a little donut or like a horse collar put your face in it real tight and you could talk real loud and they couldn't hear you out there and the guy on the other side could hear everything you said and I would ask questions that way so I could get information to you know work on my project speaking of the tap code you say because of poor treatment Smitty Harris and Fred Flom First Lieutenant USAF were fighting losing battles with debilitating gastrointestinal disease. Through a crack in our door, we watched Smitty and Fred stagger across the courtyard to the bathhouse, their emaciated bodies reminiscent of survivors of Auschwitz and Bataan. Smitty's POW weight had dwindled from 130 pounds to about 90. Fred had dropped from 140 down to about 110. Sante SRO Lieutenant Commander Render Creighton realized it would take drastic action to save the lives of these men. Using the tap code, he sent an urgent message that was transmitted across the entire compound. Tell every English-speaking Vietnamese you meet that the camp commander must do something for Harris and Flom or his superiors in Hanoi are going to be very upset with him about what is going to happen in this camp. By threatening to make trouble, we were virtually inviting reprisal. This ploy was especially risky because it revealed that we had a cohesive team with good communications. Once the enemy realized we were organized as a military unit with a functioning operational leader, they just might try to break us. Nevertheless, the seriousness of the situation justified the risk. The next day, POWs across the camp delivered the bold, agreed-upon message in rapid-fire succession. If only one or two guards had received the message, the V would have downplayed it. But our over-communication resounded across the camp like a string of firecrackers that couldn't be ignored. Evidently, the V camp commander, camp commander, fearful footer's job, was convinced we had the will and capability to carry out our threat. Three days after the message hit, Smitty and Fred were taken to a field hospital a few miles away and given fluoroscope. 
This was followed by two shots twice daily that were apparently vitamins and antibiotics. Their improvement was slow but steady. A year later, they were back to their normal POW weight. It's superbly fitting that the code was instrumental, that the code that was instrumental in saving Smitty and Harris's life because Smitty was the man who saved all of us by bringing the tap code to the POW camps. In fact, he was known to us as the code bearer. When Smitty was in survival school, he alone stayed after class one day to learn about the code used by POWs in World War II. Then as one of the first POWs in the war, he passed this precious gift on to his fellow prisoners. Now, four years later, the code had come full circle and saved his life. Amazing. And you, the first time you got like the little bit of the code, someone's telling you through your window, but you didn't get the... The missing letter. The missing letter, that C yeah. and K, there's no K. Right. It's just five by five, 25 letters in the alphabet, you remove K. Yeah. You know, Smitty's 93. He'll be 94 next April. He mm-hmm. was a POW for almost eight years. I think he was number five or six. And uh, his wife was had two little girls, five and three, I think, and she was six months pregnant with their son. But uh, incredible guy. I lived with Smitty for couple of years and in the same camp with him for probably close to five years but we've stayed real close friends and he has a book out tap code that came out three years ago and i wrote the foreword to it to talk about smitty and what a great guy he was and uh, what a great example he was for me yeah you mentioned the the being at sante for a while and i that's how we originally got connected because i had uh uh uh, Terry Butler on who is a Sante Raider and he's the one that connected with me with you um, wh- how when the Sante raid happened how did you guys hear about it what did it do to you guys what did you think about it well we were uh, we had moved to this new showplace camp because they wanted to show the world how well we we're being treated and we heard the bombs going off. There was a bomb attack to kind of distract the attention. And some, we knew something was happening that night. And then the next day, we could tell by the guards, the way they were acting, and the turnkeys and guards were like, uh. And then the next morning, we moved back to Hanoi. They loaded us all up. And they'd built this camp and put 205, four quadrants of about 50 each in one camp. We're in separate quadrants but we're all in one location so there's 205 of us there and they 48 hours within 48 hours they moved all of us back to hanoi and put us into the cell the large room cells where the vietnamese had been back for the early years we had never been in there and so we went into these big cells and went into this 1800 square foot cell with uh, 52 guys in there no walls in there just 1800 open Bay Barracks type thing, concrete slab to sleep on. But back to Sante, uh, and hearing it, hearing it uh, that night we heard it from that showplace camp, we didn't know what was happening. And then because they got scared and moved us back, we started listening, and one of the guys uh, heard uh, on their propaganda something about that Barry Goldwater had said that we could drop a men in downtown Hanoi or something like that, and they couldn't stop us or something, and that sounded strange. And then the next time we really found out was when some of the guys, uh, a new shoot down, told us 
And that was a while later, maybe about a year later, that we really found out for sure what had happened. How uh, exalting was it to be in a room with 50 other people and have all these other people to interact with? Well, it was uh, it was a celebration because we had, I mean, there were some hard parts to it, but they the good things over, overwhelmed the difficult parts because within a couple of weeks, the senior ranking officer looked around and found the one guy who had been a college instructor in the cl- in the group. He'd been recalled on active duty in 1962 and stayed in the Air Force. And Captain uh, Tom Story, he said, Tom. I'm putting you in charge of the education program. I want to make it happen. Tom found a piece of broken brick tile out in the yard, brought it in, and went over on the concrete slab floor over in the corner and started writing down subjects that study math, German, French, Spanish, Russian, art, and had us go by and put a mark under the ones we wanted to study. So he took a survey, and then he recruited teachers. And so... Within three or four weeks, we had Monday, Wednesday, Friday classes, Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday classes, three hours in the morning, two hours in the afternoon. We had Toastmasters, informal on Tuesday nights on one end of the room, formal on Thursday nights. And uh, we had every kind of class you can think of. I was studying Spanish, French, and German, teaching beginning French. Uh, I took differential calculus from a Naval Academy guy, and we were writing problems over in the corner with that piece of broken brick tile, and he was teaching me. So, I mean, we got busy, man. No, we were so busy. You talk about Paul Galani. Paul Galani and I uh, were in there together, and we would speak Spanish, French, and German for 10 minutes each, three or four days a week. We got to the point where we were dreaming in foreign languages. I'd be in speaking Spanish to somebody in a foreign language. <laughs> I didn't even, I'd be carrying on a, uh, a conversation with them in my dream. I, so that's, that's what our life became. Yeah, the, the amount of effort that you guys made. And, and in the section here, you say a number of officers developed a rigorous curriculum and volunteered to teach the various components of the course. This was that you wanted to teach an officer candidate school for the three Air Force enlisted guys. So you guys put together a course of instruction for these enlisted Air Force guys. And you say this, when the three men returned home, the U.S. Congress approved the program and offered the candidates commissions as second lieutenants in the U.S. Air Force. One was so close to retirement, he declined. The other two men accepted their commissions and enjoyed successful careers. Yep. Unbelievable. You go on to say the lack of books or outside resources did not limit our continuous learning in the POW camps. We relied on recall of past education and there was a lack of clarity. When there was a lack of clarity on the subject, we tried to get a consensus of the best minds. Eventually, many areas were codified into what we called Hanoi fact, meaning it was accepted as true until we were released and could verify the information. The in-house joke was that some men whose education had been slighted before capture and now proudly posed as experts had been totally educated by Hanoi fact. Fortunately, it turned out our facts were amazingly accurate. Our investment in developing and development has paid big dividends in the years since. <laughs> I cannot believe they took guys just so, yep, yeah, you guys learned. We're going to give you guys your commission. Incredible. Yeah, and, you know, similar in that, that same group, I think, it was a group like them, if not the same group, there were uh, four of them, four or five of them were married, and about seven or eight of them were bachelors. 
And so the married guys did marriage counseling <laughs> two days a week. They would teach a marriage course to the single guys. And one of the single guys said, well, some of what they said was true, but some of it was probably not the best in the world. But, you know, they were listening. They were trying to learn about what it's like to be married when we go home. I want to go back to the code of conduct here again, or to back to the book here to talk about the code of conduct. You say, we found that the code of conduct had to be interpreted in light of specific circumstances. How long a person should resist under torture before completing a biography or agreeing to read the propaganda news into a tape recorder to be played over camp radio? Under what conditions should we try and escape? How much torture should someone take to avoid meeting with a peace delegation? These were not hypothetical issues that a detached executive made in a remote top floor corner office would address for implementation by the rank and file. In the POW camps, the decision makers knew they were likely to be the first to follow their own guidance. Reisner, Stockdale, and Denton made it clear that we were to refuse to participate in propaganda broadcasts, but under extreme torture, it was impossible to totally resist. As we learned from the experience of several men who did not come home, at some point, mind, body, and spirit break, causing loss of rational, coherent thought and the ability to effectively function. Therefore, Reisner further clarified this policy by adding that we should, quote, take torture indefinitely, but stop short of losing life or limb or mental faculties by falling back to a second line of defense. Having been pushed beyond his endurance several times, he knew that sometimes temporary submission was the only way to preserve the ability to fight. Because some POWs were simply tougher mentally and physically than others, local RSOs had the freedom to interpret resistance policies to suit the circumstances. Major Larry Guarino, am I saying that right? Guarino. Guarino, who heroically stood up to some of the worst treatment during the darkest days of the zoo camp, demonstrated wise discernment about how to effectively balance accomplishment of mission and care for the men. He said there are wide differences in people. A very few men, like Jim Kasler, Major U.S. Air Force, have the stamina and courage to stick to a hard line during severe punishment and continue to hold out. Most men, although they want to do a good job, will gamely resist the cruelties, but not for very long. Although our leaders were often tortured first and most, they did not pretend to be macho John Wayne heroes. On the contrary, they openly shared the pain and despair of their brokenness, helping us understand the enemy's tactics and the realities of what was and what was not possible. It would have been disastrous for the mission and for their credibility had they been less than totally honest with us about their experiences and the torture torture chambers mutual accountability and transparency in the face of a cruel enemy bonded us together tightly an analysis conducted after the war by headquarters u.s air force reflects the sacrifices and commitment made to achieve the mission nine faithful warriors died before they could return with honor We lost eight brave men due to extreme torture and deprivation in the earlier years, and one died of typhoid fever. More than 95% of the POWs were tortured. Approximately 40% of POWs were in solitary confinement more than six months. 20% were in solitary for more than a year. 10% were in solitary for more than two years. And several were in solitary more than four years. 
Considering the length of stay and the crowded conditions, our survival record was remarkable. Most of us made it back and our mental and, health, mental and emotional state exceeded the predictions of most of the mental health professionals advising the DOD. Over, the overall determination and devotion of this group to our mission was impressive. Of the nearly 500 POWs in our network, fewer than 10%, or sorry, fewer than 10, only 2%, willingly cooperated with the enemy. And it's, you know, again, from a leadership perspective, all this leadership was done tapping on walls and setting examples. It's just like, it's from a leadership perspective, it's an incredible story. Well, when you don't have a lot of news and no radio and no TV, (laughs) you don't get a lot of news. And what you get is usually focused on what's happening, how we're resisting, and, uh, that becomes the the headlines and you know where you are you know what's going to happen and you've just got to be able to face up to it and walk walk that line one step at a time i think that was uh every day was an unknown and yet somehow we had to step out every day and be ready for whatever came our way and respond to it in a way that was honorable, that was courageous, that we would uh, be willing to stand up to our boss and say, here's what I did and here's why I did it. And the amazing thing about this situation, I think one that made it so strong was that the bosses got tortured the most and they had to stand up and say, here's what I did and here's why and here's what happened. So the fact that our bosses were so vulnerable, they're very courageous and very tough, but they were vulnerable about sharing what they had been through and what they had done. It set an example and it it created a culture that was very special. Speaking of leadership and uh, you know, as I as I as we've gone through this book, this is a book about leadership and and a book about you know what the human being can come up against uh but it's absolutely a leadership book i've been we'll we'll get to some of the leadership uh, a little bit later but i did want to jump into this point on leadership right now um you say this leaders who balance the competing demands of results and relationships are able to push for the achievement of goals while eliciting the best from their people it's as if they have two bank accounts they make their deposit they make deposits in their results account by consistently accomplishing their goals and they build up capital in their relationship account by caring for their people as individuals of worth in the first instance they earn credibility with their superiors and in the second they earn loyalty from their followers occasionally leaders will need to make withdrawals from these bank accounts for example a leader who is being pressured by unrealistic expectations from above may need to draw on the credibility she's accumulated with her results bank account and say to her superiors we need to adjust this timetable or burn out our people at other times she may have to make a withdrawal from the relationship bank account and say to her team we'll have to work over the weekend to get this job done With regard to balancing mission and people, Admiral Stockdale wisely said, a leader must remember that he is responsible for his charges. He must tend to his flock, not only cracking the whip, but washing their feet when they are in need of help. 
Balancing results and relationships is a major leadership challenge. Some leaders are naturally gifted with the head, logic, and not very good with the heart, feelings. Others are the opposite. Only about 20% of the population has a natural ability with both. Even those with this tightrope walking capability often end up tilting toward a results-oriented style because results are typically what get noticed and rewarded. If your leadership style is unbalanced, the good news is that you don't have to reinvent yourself. To gain better balance, you simply have to develop some of the skills you lack. Simply put, you may either need to toughen up or soften up. This may sound artificial, but with practice, your adapted behaviors will feel more comfortable. They will never become totally natural, however, so you'll have to consistently and intentionally work at keeping your balance. I make a living on that right there. Mm-hmm. I, I've coached CEOs. I coached a CEO who was a West Point graduate, Army Ranger, had a Harvard MBA. And when I told him, when I confronted him, so to speak, I said, you don't, you don't give any positive feedback to your team. He had a, a really good executive team. He said, well, uh, you know, that's just not me. Uh, I said, wait a minute. You know better than that. I said, your people, they're all different kinds, and some of them need a lot more affirmation and feedback than others, but they all need to know that you believe in them, that you care about them, that you see how well they're doing. Well, we actually wrote him out a three-sentence uh, affirmation for one of the VPs on his team, and I had him stand in front of the mirror and practice smiling to the point that he felt, I said, I want you to go to the point you feel almost ridiculous, smiling and energetic and enthusiastic when you say this. And he practiced, and he did it. And his team performance really went up. And But I've coached him for two months, and when I finished, his, he said, uh, the last day I was with him, he said, hey, can you stay five minutes after we finish today? And I said, sure. He said, I got somebody I want you to meet. So we finished. He jumps up, runs out in the hall, brings in a lady, and introduces her as his wife. And she said, well, I just wanted to meet you and say thank you because we have one son, we have one child, one son who's 13 years old. And in the last two or three months, his relationship with our son has totally changed. He sits down and asks him questions and listens to him and smiles and encourages him said, it's just wonderful. Thank you. <laughs> and I said, well, he did it. You know, he courageously learned how to do things. Well, 10 years later, I saw that CEO in a meeting in Atlanta. I said, how are you doing? He said, fine. How's your son doing? Oh, he graduated from college, and he's working at the bank now. And says, he and I are going to run a half marathon together on Saturday. It just totally changed him. Here was a guy who was so results-oriented, he could not even think anything about feelings or relationships or what people's needs were but once he started letting people know that he cared about them and believed in them it totally changed his leadership and now he's the ceo of another company and they think he's the best ceo they ever had yeah yeah that's awesome uh leif and i wrote another book which is called the dichotomy of leadership and what the dichotomy of leadership is about is this and there's all kinds of different dichotomies we talk about the first chapter is about hey you've got these guys that you love more than anything else in the world 
and you're gonna send them out on missions that may get them killed. Mm-hmm. And how do you balance that? You gotta balance that. Right. And you gotta have you gotta care about the men, but you've got to also accomplish the mission. Ultimately, if you don't take care of your men, you're not gonna have anyone to execute the mission. So you have to prioritize taking care of your team. But you know, you've got the 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 same exact theory here um it's, yeah. it was just awesome for me to read it in you know l- uh, different vocabulary but the exact same message and holds true in any situation and you know that 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 chapter or that title dichotomy of leadership was the last chapter in the book extreme ownership because you know we said hey listen you're going to be pulled in multiple different directions you got to stay balanced as a leader that's the thing you got to do and there's a bunch of categories you know you could be a micromanager if you go too far in management, mm-hmm. you could be too hands off. No one knows what's going on. So communicating, you communicate too much, you communicate too little. So you want to be balanced. But we wrote that as one chapter. But as we went out and continue to work with companies, the biggest problem companies have, the biggest problem leaders have would be finding that balance. Mm-hmm. And then like you say in here, you know, people have what they tend towards, right? Yep. Some people tend towards I just need to take care of everyone. And they take care of everyone to the point that they don't get anything done. Exactly. And you have people that tend towards, I'm just gonna get the mission done and I don't care what happens. I don't care who I, whose back I step on to get there. So. Uh, yeah, I quoted, I quoted your book, Extreme Ownership, and a couple of times in my books too, by the way, because I, I saw your mindset said what I wanted to say and I said, <laughs> let, let Jocko say it. <laughs> yeah, well, we, in the dichotomy of leadership, we pose all kinds of these opposing forces that you have as a leader. And the, the, the opposing force that you, that you phrase very succinctly is results versus relationship. Those are two things that they're pulling you in opposite directions. Mission and people, yep, same and, thing. And you gotta yeah. stay balanced. So. Well, you know, I've been working in uh, assessments of human behavior for 32 years. And the one thing I know is that 40% of the population is wired toward results, mission, focus. And 40% are wired more towards people, patients, relationship, social focus. And 20% have some of both. But to be a great leader, you have to do both. So you're going to have to learn to adapt in certain situations to be either tougher or more uh affirming and kind the thing that the thing that everybody needs to understand and this goes to the pow it goes to the fighter pilot world it goes to everywhere is that every human being wants to feel valued and important worthy and when you as a leader are able to let them know that you value them that you appreciate them uh that you believe they have a future you believe in their future and that you're gonna help them develop, it totally changes their loyalty, their commitment, they're gonna work harder, they don't wanna let you down. But that's not easy for results, mission-focused leaders. It's just not part of their natural mindset. You know, uh, Richard Boyatzis, Dr. Richard Boyatzis, who was one of the co-authors of uh, the big emotional intelligence book that came out in 2002 or three, uh, I have a video, two and a half minute video of him talking about the brain, the the networks in the brain, and he said there's the task focus network and the social network, which is very similar to what we're talking about here: mission, people, results, relationship. And he said they can actually see with the MRIs of the brain that when a person is working a problem, that the social network 
goes quiet and shuts down. And it's all focused on results, 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 solving the problem. And he says, but the problem is you have to do both. And you have to learn to switch. Mm-hmm. And he said, in our schools, our business schools, our MBA programs, so much of the time it's spent on results, 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 results. And they don't teach them much about learning to deal with people and let people know you care about them, that you, uh, you appreciate them and that they're valuable, they're important. And, you know, there's another thing I've watched. There's a guy out in California who's a Ph.D. psychologist, and he talks about uh, the, the, uh, the monitoring of the child's brain, a baby six to nine months old, an MRI of a baby six to nine months old. When somebody smiles at them and cuddles them, their prefrontal cortex develops in a healthy way. And so the whole concept is that for a small child, unconditional love is the most positive thing. And people that have had a lot, their prefrontal cortex develops in a more healthy way. They have less uh, problems working with people and doing their job too. But Every human being wants to be cared about. And the more that, and I, I have a model now. It's called Insecure Secure. And on the left side is Insecure. <clears throat> Excuse me. And this model on the left side is Insecure, and the right side of this continuum is Secure. Secure is confident and humble. Okay? Insecure has doubts, fears, shame, guilt, all these things that cause us to be insecure. Now, we all can be insecure in some places, so we slide back and forth on this model. But healthy people spend most of their time over on the secure side. And as a leader, my goal and your goal should be, how can we help our people become more secure? Because the more secure they are, the more confident they're going to be and be able to do things, but also they're going to be more humble and admit when they do it, don't do it. Okay? So how can you do that? You have to help them believe in themselves. What can you do to help? So I came up with a simple, the the four A's. Acknowledge their existence. Accept them for who they are. Show some appreciation and affirmation. And find those have to be legitimate affirmations for something they've done. But... Make an effort to do that. One CEO coach, I had him put all the people's names across the top in a spreadsheet and all the the things he needed to get to know about them down the side because he said, I don't, don't do that. I don't go down to their office. I don't talk to them because that's not my job. And I said, well, I think it is. <laughs> so he, had, he was so results-oriented, <clears throat> I had him check them off. <laughs> Every time you go to that person's office and do that, you check it off. And he, that was how he learned how to do it. Yeah, that's uh, awesome stuff. Uh, number one, for me, a, a lot of times, you know, when you talk about how to build people's confidence and the four A's, great. Well, one of my favorite tools in leadership is leadership. One of my favorite tools in leadership is leadership. So mm. I went through my whole career to this day when I want someone, when I want to show someone I appreciate them, when I want to show them I trust them, I'm going to put in charge of stuff. I'm going to put them in leadership positions, and that's going to elevate the way they feel about themselves. They're going to know that I trust them. They're going to know I appreciate them because I'm giving them more autonomy. So, so I, that's just uh, totally in line. 
Another thing that we talk about at our company is, is something we call the leadership loop. And it's just things to think about as you're leading people. And the heaviest weight when I'm making a leadership decision is what is this gonna do to my leadership capital? So if I, if you know, Dave's got a project that's due and it's gonna, hey look, the client wants it by, by Wednesday and I know it's gonna impact the way Dave's, you know, his weekend is gonna ruin his weekend. I'm actually gonna weigh out, hey, is this worth the impact it's gonna have mm-hmm. to my leadership capital that I have with Dave? And mm-hmm. maybe I say, you know what? I'm gonna call the client and say, hey listen, we're gonna have to push this back a few days. Or I call Dave, you know, if it's, if it's gonna ruin the relationship with the client, Hey Dave, this is, you know, I got to cash in some of these chips, man. We got to get this thing done. I'm where do you want to meet to get this thing worked on this weekend cuz we got to get this thing done. So so that's again, just in line different verbiage. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing is when it comes to results oriented. And I'm saying to myself, you know, man, it, for me to put some for me to give Dave this project and give him some more autonomy, he's, he can't do this as good as me. And so a lot of times, you know, people say, I just want to get it done. I want to get it done right. The problem with that is it's a short-term win mm-hmm. because over time I haven't developed Dave into, wow. a, into a better leader that understands how to get these projects done. So I need to think of things in a strategic manner so my goal becomes not the result, immediate results for this particular project. The goal becomes winning in a long-term strategic way where I've trained up not just Dave, but three or four other of his peers that can all step up and get this stuff mm-hmm. done. Now we can win on a much broader scale and we're gonna get much more profound strategic results than if I just get stuff done myself because that's what the result-oriented yep. leader often wants to do. Yep. So You believed in him. 100%. When you did that, you yep. believed in him. Yep. Yep. And he don't wanna let you down. That's the way it works. Uh, I had to read this part. You said over at camp, over at plantation camp, Charlie Plum, Lieutenant JG, United States Navy, was the resident inventor, an engineer with a strong background in electronics. He developed more than a dozen devices to measure time, temperature, and weight. He was well on his way to making a radio when the V discovered his stash of razor blades, nails, wire, spools, and tinfoil. Plum also scratched a keyboard on his bedboards and went over the notes until he could hear them in his head. <laughs> so we had Charlie Plum on this on this podcast, number 76 and number 95. Uh, so when you're in camp, you're memorizing each other's names, right? We're memorizing all the names of everyone. Do you remember Charlie Plum's name when you were in camp? Yeah. And then you met him afterwards? Yeah. Crazy, crazy. Uh, when you're in there and, and people, do you, do you sort of get to know people even though you've never even seen them? Yes and no, because sometimes you might be with someone who does know them, and they tell you about them. That's another thing Charlie Plum mentioned to me. He said, you know, you're in a cell with four guys. He said it was around the three-month mark. You knew absolutely every detail of their life, every movie they'd seen, every TV show they watched, who all their teachers were, what their, fa- you know, every girlfriend that they ever had, their family, their their brother's girlfriends, you just knew everything. And he said when a new person would come into the cell, it was like all ears. Everyone Non-stop. just, stop. just like, tell us your entire life story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's crazy. Um, on a fast forward here again, I'm gonna fast forward through a bunch of stuff, but um, 
We're getting towards the end here. Early on our final day of captivity, the V issued each of us a pair of dark blue cotton slacks, a long sleeve blue shirt, a gray windbreaker, and a small gym bag and a pair of shoes. We didn't waste any time getting dressed. For the first time in more than five years, we would be wearing something other than black or maroon striped pajamas. My feet had become so accustomed to rubber tread tires held on by straps across the toe that I wondered if I would have trouble putting on real shoes. It was not a problem. Yes, this was the day, the long-awaited day, and we were functioning as if it was just another day at work. To be honest, I was more curious than excited. I had grown to be so cautious that my emotions were flat as a table. After five years, four months, and two weeks, 1,955 days of captivity, I was going to walk through this exercise and see what happened. As our names were called, we stepped forward and saluted the senior U.S. Air Force officer who was receiving us. We were then escorted to three waiting C-141s, a bird never, a bird ever after to be known as the Hanoi Taxi. When we were all loaded, the walk-on tailgates were closed and the windowless aircraft, which felt inside somewhat like a cave, began taxiing out. The lack of visibility brought to mind a trip I had taken less than a year earlier when we were transported under a tarp to the back of a in the back of a truck from the Hanoi north to Dogpatch. On today's journey though, there would be no blindfolds, handcuffs, guards, or bone jarring bounces. The revving of the C-141's four big engines caused my heart to race. Pilots love the feeling of power during the run up and takeoff. This time it was almost surreal. As the brakes released and our Hanoi taxi accelerated smoothly down the runway, we held our breath waiting, waiting, waiting. Finally, the wheels broke ground. We were airborne. A bedlam of cheers, yells, whistles, and foot stomps erupted in the cabin. Our destination was the big hospital at Clark Air Force Base in the Philippines. As the primary Air Force staging base in both the Korean and Vietnam Wars, it was a familiar place to most of us. A few minutes after takeoff, the aircraft commander came on the intercom. Gentlemen, we are feet wet and over international waters. A roar went up. The captives indeed were free. On the flight to Clark Air Force Base, we smoked cigars, circulated, shook hands, looked at the latest magazines, visited the cockpit where I was taken aback to see that the aircraft commander was a captain about my age, still under 30. We also took turns hugging the three nurses on board. Other than a couple Vietnamese kitchen coolies, we had not seen a female in all those years. As the Hanoi Hilton As the Hanoi taxi rolled into the VIP parking space at Clark, we were surprised to see a large crowd waiting with welcome signs and banners. As we deplaned, the cheers and tears of the crowd warmed our hearts and calmed our anxieties about our re-entry into a radically altered world. It was a shock to be treated like returning heroes. We did not see ourselves as heroic. We had simply done our duty. So that's a, can't even imagine what that was like. You know, we were, as I said, emotionally, we were so flat. It was like, okay, what's next? (laughs) What's next? But we were thrilled with the crowd and uh, it was exciting, but it was always thinking, okay, this is good. What's next? That was I, mine, and I'm sure most people, because I didn't know what to expect. Mm-hmm. 
what was the biggest ch- and you look you talk you talk a lot in the book about you know <laughs> what you're actually doing you know you, you talk about one guy that he must have made three or four rotations through the chow hall line getting sausages and eggs and steak and ice yeah. cream and everything yeah. so you, you talk about some of that stuff i mean you got captured in 1967 as we mentioned this was before the like the hippie movement had really come out what was your view as you came back to this radically changed world? That's the term that uses radically changed, and it was pretty. It wasn't. It was a radical change. Yeah. I was uh, protected in that going back to Georgia and small towns. It wasn't as extreme as it would have been maybe in San Diego or San Francisco or somewhere not San Diego but San Francisco, or L.A. So I was somewhat protected. But I think there were several folks that threw parties for me, high school, college friends, and that sort of thing, and uh, family. And there was a young lady who was uh, my age, college, went to college with her. But she was an anti-war person. She'd become a a college university professor, I think, was anti-war. But she was my friend. And I did not show any disrespect for her, and she didn't show any for me. We were friendly and treated each other respectfully. I think it was some of the extremists, though, that spit on soldiers in uniform and insulted them. I didn't encounter too many of those, but a lot of people did. And POWs, we didn't because the war had ended. It was over, and there was something to celebrate and we kind of became something to celebrate that the war was over so i think both sides uh at least uh, anti-war people uh tolerated us at least when we first came home and so uh we didn't get any of that negative stuff and i think that made it a lot better for us and a lot easier for us to make that transition yeah and it, it again um, we kind of touched it on our on it already but just the the unity that you had as POWs, the time you had spent together, the fact that you had bore your soul to each other and to yourselves, this sort of absolute ownership, this extreme ownership of who you were as people, that you all came out of this shockingly, shockingly well. Yeah. <laughs> Shockingly yeah. well. Yeah, it is. When you look at what we did and where we've been and all as a group, it is shockingly uh, shockingly well as the way we came home. And I think, you know, uh, here's one example uh, in looking at my own self, is I realized after I retired, I never worried about getting promoted. I did my job as best I possibly could. I just wanted to do a good job. And I came back and went to work. And I didn't want any special treatment. I just wanted to prove I could do my job and to be successful with it. But I didn't worry about getting promoted to be, I didn't worry about getting this job or that job. You know, I just, it's coming, it's coming nice and whatever happens is gonna happen, you know? So it, because I didn't have insecurity. Going back to the insecure, secure. How can I be insecure when I've got a good job, flying <laughs> airplanes, I'm a 
flight commander. I'm a section commander. I'm a chief of standardization. I'm a chief check pilot on the base. I'm a squadron commander. I mean, I have had it so good. And I don't think they gave me those jobs because I'd been a POW. You know, I had to prove that I could do it. My my units got high ratings. <laughs> they didn't give them high ratings because of me. They The IG or the inspectors would come in and the standardization evaluation, they'd come in. And because I had good guys doing good jobs, okay, that my team was doing their job really well. Well, okay. I think I helped them. In retrospect, I didn't think about that any of that at the time. But now I say, okay, I guess I was doing okay. <laughs> yeah, and the other thing is, uh, you know, if you're going to be the, let's say, the, the senior check pilot on base, and you are looking at your skill set, and you say, oh, you know, I could, I could get a little bit better at this, you're the type of person that goes, well, I'll go work on it, and I'll improve on it, so yep. I can be better at this. And those are the kind of people that ultimately – get to a higher level because they're being honest with themselves, taking ownership of their shortfalls and then making corrections. Yep. I, uh, I, you know, that's, that leads to debrief. One of the most important things a person, a leader can do is debrief. When I, uh, make a presentation, I debrief afterwards and say, what did, when, what did I do well to myself and what did I could have done better in this situation? And when I go to a meeting, Okay, and I walk out of that meeting, I say, what did I do well? What could I have done better? And I coach myself, okay, next time you need to do this or this or a little bit better. And I do the same thing when I am at home with my wife. There are times when I mess up, guys. <laughs> and I debrief myself after that and say, oh, what could I have done better? Let's. See, what can I take ownership for? Sometimes my wife even debriefs me for me, yeah. you know, which is a bonus. <laughs> uh, I, I mentioned this earlier. So in, in the book, this is a leadership book, and it's a leadership book filled with, stories, with a bunch of stories and examples of leadership. And at the end of each one of these sections, you go through what you call foot stompers, and it's a very common term. I don't know if they, I don't know if civilians use the term foot stompers, but in the military, we certainly all branches use this term foot stompers, which is when you're learning something from an instructor and they hit a point that's going to be on the test, they'll they'll stomp their foot on the ground like, "Hey, listen up, you better pay attention." Right. So you have these these sort of leadership foot stompers. At, at the end of the book, and they're throughout the book, but you you summarize them here. So I just wanted to go through these uh, to to close out this. Uh, number one, know yourself. Authentic leadership flows from inside out. You will be most successful and fulfilled when you clarify who you uniquely are in terms of purpose, passion, and personality, and then lead authentically from that core. And by the way. Everybody can tell. And if you're pretend, trying to pretend to be someone you're not, people can tell it. I, I, I always say intent has a smell. So if you're, like you just said, you never tried to get promoted. I never tried to get promoted either. It's like, oh, I'm gonna work hard. And I kind of, I had an advantage that I was a prior enlisted officer. So if I didn't get promoted, oh well. I was still in the Navy for 20 years. They couldn't do anything to me. Uh, but that intent has a smell. So. Like you say here, uh, be authentic. 
Number two, guard your character. Authentic leaders intentionally guard their character. Clarify your values with specificity and total honesty. Then structure a support team to help you live them with courage and transparency. Number three, stay positive. A positive attitude is one leader's greatest assets and it's one of the best ways you can influence and lead others. Keep your chin up because when it goes down, you do too. And many others will follow right behind. And I don't know if there's any examples throughout history stronger than you all have from being in this POW camp for a positive attitude. So everyone can learn from that. Confront your doubts and fears. Authentic leaders develop courage as an act of will. Choose today to do what you know to be right even when it feels unnatural or unsafe. Trust yourself, honor your values, lean into your pain, and intentionally engage issues with strength and humility despite your fears. Number five, fight to win. Successful leaders believe in their mission and fight to carry it out successfully. They don't quit, they expect to win, they take others with them, and they give the others the credit. Number six, bounce back. Authentic leaders know that life is difficult, they expect to get knocked down, and they have the proper attitude and outlook to enable them to persevere. You have a choice about how you respond to difficulties. Confront the brutal realities of your situation, but never give up hope. Develop your plan, connect with your support team, and bounce back. And then you get into a section, leading others. Clarify and build your culture. Authentic leaders intentionally define and build cultures that further the mission, vision, and values of their organization. Assess the culture of your organization and take the appropriate steps to make sure it is well-defined, soundly structured, and effectively communicated. Number eight, over-communicate the message. Effective communication requires intentional effort to overcome noise, distractions, and misinterpretations in the workplace. You must develop a clear message and comprehensive communication plan. Then you must over-communicate your message multiple times through multiple channels. And I don't care what environment you're in, whatever communication methodology you have is not as hard as tapping on walls with the threat of being tortured or killed. So you can improve the communication inside your organization. Number nine, develop your people. Authentic leaders engage in continual development. Knowledge alone is not enough. The only way to grow as a leader is to do things differently. That requires change. Go first and then take your people with you. And again, I don't think there's anybody that has to work harder to develop their people than creating college courses inside of a prison camp. (laughs) No books. No books. Doing it all from memory. Number 10, balance mission and people. Outstanding leaders balance accomplishment of the mission, results, and care for the people, relationships. However, the styles of most leaders are naturally biased towards one end of the spectrum or another. To enhance your leadership effectiveness, find out which type of skills you need to develop. Then, leaning into the pain of your doubts and fears, adapt your behaviors to do what you know a good leader should do. That's another thing that's weird about these tendencies that we have is when we go against them, we think we're wrong. You know, we think like we're going to get in trouble. Yeah. We think that, oh, I better not do that. I better not. I, I need to focus on results so that that ego will start chiming in. Number 11, build cohesive teams. Build trust by helping teammates gain understanding, acceptance, and respect for each other. The resulting unity and cohesion will enable them to engage in creative conflict, which in turn will build the commitment and loyalty necessary to overcome the most difficult challenges. Underrated way of building a cohesive team, listening to what the team has to say. There's a lot, I, I didn't, 
a lot of examples you give in the book about this is how much discussion and input the SROs would take yes. when coming up with a decision. Yes. It wasn't like the SROs just created the ideas in a vacuum and then imposed them on the team. You, you all would have discussions, and you describe it in the book as often passionate discussions mm-hmm. about what the course of action was. Um, number 12, exploit creativity. Think futuristically and innovate to stay competitive. Everyone has the capacity for innovative ideas. The leader's job is to draw them out, harness the ideas of creative folks, and allow them to pull you ahead of the competition. And yeah, I read that one little section of Charlie Plum, but that's there's a whole section that you're talking about all these different individuals and all the things that they did to improve life in the camp. You know, most of the creativity comes from the bottom up. And leaders need to be aware of that. They're not saying you have to adapt to every idea that comes up. But quite often the people doing the work have the most creative ideas of how to do it better and fix it. Yeah, no doubt about that. Uh, the, this, just, you have to be paying attention to what the people on the front lines are saying. Yep. Number 13, treasure your trials and celebrate your successes. Effective leadership is forged in the crucible of struggles and fueled by the celebration of accomplishment to promote teamwork and achieve success. Treasure your trials and celebrate your victories. And the last one, free the captives. Authentic leaders proactively identify the shackles that hold them back and lean into the pain to break free and grow. As you gain your own freedom, begin helping others to do the same. Start by avoiding bitterness, connecting with your emotions, and doing the right thing even when it's difficult. So those are the, uh, the foot stompers. And, and to get like uh, more of the details around those and great examples, um, everyone that's listening, get the book. Uh, now, you have this next book. The, 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 this book is called Engage With Honor, and we're not gonna do it today, but at some point, hopefully you can come back and yeah. we can cover that book and the ideas that are in that book and the stories that are in that book. But I wanted to just quickly, just to kind of introduce people to what I thought was a, a really outstanding part of the book and also kind of the crux or one of the cruxes of the book. Because the book is called the book is called Engage with Honor. So I'm skipping to this section here. It's called Learn to Engage. It says, collaboration requires engagement. Unfortunately, many leaders respond out of unhealthy emotions. Instead of engaging to collaborate, they let negative emotions drive them to either dominate or withdraw. And again, going back to the dichotomy of leadership, these are two two extremes that are bad, dominating a conversation, dominating ideas, or withdrawing from conversation, or withdrawing from ideas. And this is presented in the leadership engagement model, which is something that you created. All of us have made this mistake at home or at work, and usually in both arenas. It's the easy way out, but it's not honorable, and it never works in the long run. In uncomfortable situations, most people have a natural default to either dominate or withdraw based on their natural DNA. Negative emotions, so that's like, you know, you get confronted, there's a there's a, a plan that needs to be made, there's a scenario that's unfolding, and what most people tend to do 
is either dominate or withdraw. So when something's getting uncomfortable, they either dominate or withdraw depending on your DNA. Negative emotions come from the limbic system of the brain that can be quick and strong, making it easy to go left or right side responses. And you've got a chart here that I'm gonna explain. Moving to the engage column. So this is, this is instead of trying to dominate or instead of withdrawing, what you wanna do is you wanna engage. This is the engage column of this chart, which again, I'll describe in a second. It requires you to slow down and use the prefrontal cortex of the brain to rationally consider the issues and what's at stake. Engagement takes a willingness to respect, listen, share logic, discuss mindsets, and stay engaged to work through a healthy solution. Most of all, engagement requires setting aside or walking through your fears, and that takes a great deal of courage. And then you get into this, this, this uh, chart that you've got here, the leadership engagement model. So on the one side, you got withdraw. So this is an uncomfortable situation, this is how people respond. One response that people have is to withdraw, which means they retreat, they hide, they avoid, they abandon, they quit, or they go passive aggressive. The other side, the other extreme on this spectrum is to dominate, which is they control, they dictate, they force, they bully, they manipulate. The, you've got a list of the emotions that kind of trigger these two responses and they're both the same. Right. Right? Fear, anger, distrust, pride, ego, hubris, pessimism, shame, guilt. Both those, you got both those and both, all those descriptions, both those columns. So, and you know, when some people are afraid, some people just hide, some people attack, right? Mm-hmm. When people, when people's ego gets in the way, of course, some people, some people shy away or, or they, they turn people off, they don't say anything, or some people jump in and try and dominate. The correct response here that you've got in the middle, which is engage, a balanced response, is believe, initiate, dialogue, clarify, connect, collaborate, celebrate. And this is driven by the emotions of courage, of respect, love, trust, humility, optimism, self-respect, confidence. So this is an important thing for us to think about, an important uh, model for us to think about from this book, Engage with Honor, is think about what you're doing when it's time to respond. Are you responding out of fear? Are you responding out of anger? Are you, are you retreating? Are you hiding? Are you avoiding? Man, that avoid one. People like that one, don't they? I'm just going to avoid this problem. Pretend it doesn't exist. Hopefully it'll go away. Uh, or are you going to try and get in there and impose your your plan, impose your will, and force things down people's throats? None of those are good. Instead, go out and talk to people. Collaborate with them. So powerful stuff inside that book um, and a ton of, ton of other information. I think you may have one of those. That's the courage card on one side, the courage challenge, and on the back side it has the engage uh, model that you were just talking about yeah. so that – we give these out to our clients so that um, they can actually learn to coach themselves. Okay, ah, yes, I was withdrawing there. I should have engaged. You know, we had a one client. It was um, a large hospital, and I at the workshop we were offsite retreat. And I said, okay, I, w- I want somebody to tell a story of how the hospital has done one or the other of these, and so they thought about it for a minute and somebody says well you know we're working with the doctors from that clinic over there 
we tried to dominate because we're the hospital and they're the doctors. And they withdrew. And then a year later, they came back with something and they tried to dominate and we withdrew. <laughs> and, and what we needed to do was sit down and work through all that with them. Engage. Because they need us and we need them. Engage and work through it. Yep, yep. Uh, again, maybe next time we'll, we'll go through that book yep. and some of the yep. leadership in that inside that book. But for now, uh, that gets us up to date uh, somewhat. Where, where can people find you? Um, let's talk about that. I know you've got leadingwithhonor.com. Yes. So that's the main page for your consulting, for your speaking. All that stuff can be found there. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have an Instagram. Yes. Your Instagram is leading with honor. You have a Twitter. So you're on social media Le- at Leon Lee Ellis. Mm-hmm. Facebook page, Leon in parentheses, Lee Ellis. Mm-hmm. And then you LinkedIn, Lee Ellis came up pretty quick. Yeah. Uh, the books we talked about today, Leading with Honor, the, both these books are available. We'll, we'll, we'll put them on. Yeah, Everywhere. we'll put them on our website yeah, so people good. can just easily find them yeah. and link through. I just gave Echo Charles, who's sitting in the corner right now, the look of confirmation. Yeah. There are times <laughs> where I, as a leader, fail to correctly impose the idea that when we say something should be on the website, it should be on the website. Yeah. Oh, good. So, so I think by the big affirmation nod I just got from Echo Charles, I think we should be good. Um, but that's where we can find you. Yes, thank you. And there are a lot of free tools on our website. Uh, a lot of things, the things we're talked about here, the uh, engage model and everything, those are all free on the website. We, we even have one on voting. And it's totally non-political, but it's on how to think about who you're going to vote for. And it emphasizes character. But there's a few questions you can check yeah. off. But there's just a lot of free tools on there. Uh, what on kind the of what kind of scores are our politicians getting on the character right now? <laughs> are we talking about the point? The guy that scored a point zero one beats the guy that scored a point zero zero one. You know, I think politicians get very insecure when they're afraid that somebody's going to publicize something negative about them, and then they fight. And what you know, talking about character earlier. Once you step over the line and do something that you're not proud of, then you have to cover it up, especially if you're a politician. Mm -hmm. And so you start covering up. And then you do something. That covering up causes more, and it just cascades, really. That's why when you mess something up, you say, hey, this is what I just messed up. Exactly. This is my mistake. Here's what I was thinking. Here's why I did it. Wasn't right. Yeah. Dave, what do you got for questions? You've been you've been quiet over there. At least let's get, let's, get let's get an F four phantom. Let's get an F four phantom question. Come on, I don't have any questions. Um, it's it's actually very easy to be quiet when I'm listening to you tell your story. So uh, please don't take my lack of verbal engagement as anything other than just being really captivated. And this is um, probably the second time in a couple months I've had a chance to sit here and talk to a, a fighter pilot. Uh, tell his story. We listened to Bud, Bud Anderson, a couple mm-hmm. months back, yeah. and then of course now you. And uh, what I've been thinking about more than anything is it, it's it's just it's so remarkable to me that you're you're talking about these names and and as as a naval aviator, 
um, you know, McCain, uh, those names like that, um, you know, Stockdale, they're just, they're just in the vernacular. There's just the names that Naval Aviation knows. I have a picture from my T2 Buckeye intermediate jet training class sitting on the wing of the exact same T2 Buckeye that John McCain sat on as an ensign. Mm. But when you talk about Lance Sijin, uh Robbie Reisner, and if you have any connection to the Air Force, which I was very fortunate growing up to have a connection and didn't exchange with the Air Force, those names are the same names for the Air Force as the ones I talked about on, on the Navy. But those were, the, I only knew them from books. I only knew them from lore and from stories. And to, to hear you talk about them in a way that really humanizes them because you, you didn't read about them, you didn't hear about them, that you actually knew them has been just a incredibly incredibly powerful for me because those guys shaped what I did in my life. But I was removed from them because they were just they they weren't even people. They were just put up on a pedestal. Like yeah. they were they were elevated above there. But to hear you talk about that, I hope you take a little bit of I hope you take some pride in knowing that there's an opportunity now for a whole other generation of people and the thousands upon thousands of people are going to listen to this podcast and hear those names. They're going to Google them. They're going to look them up. They're going to read those books, thoughts of a philosophical fighter pilot, those type of books, and then hear about what Lance Sijin did to earn the Medal of Honor. Um, they get to they get to do to another group of people what they did to me. Uh, and I think the reason that happened is because I got to sit here and listen to you tell that story and tell those stories of them. So thanks for letting me be part of this. This well, has been you. incredible. Thank you, Dave. I, uh, those guys inspired me too. They were, they were exceptional people because going back to things, some of the things that Jocko's been talking about was they believed in themselves and they weren't afraid to they weren't afraid of failing. They knew they were committed to what they were doing. They stayed with it and did the best they could, and they did not worry about what somebody else would think or anything like that. They just did their best, and that's what made them so special to us and everybody else and uh, their rewards and, you know, that they – Raja would have won a uh, – Medal of Honor also, but they'd already given two or three out to POWs, and they didn't want to give any more, but he should have probably have had one too. It's a silver star, but uh, those they were amazing, inspirational. Lance was an inspiring teammate. We played golf together and dated girls together, but I always kind of looked up to him. You know, when we – you brought up Lance and you talked about Lance, but we weren't on the podcast. Can you Can you – go through again you know your your experiences with lance and 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 what happened with him well we uh connected in survival school right after we got our wings we were assigned f4 pipeline southeast asia both of us were and our first next assignment was to fairchild air force base to survival school up in uh Washington, and we went there and went through that. And I watched him in class and out in the field as we were going through. And Lance was paying so much attention carefully and asking questions in class. And he sat on the front row, and he was so focused on that survival training because he knew we're going to war and should be important. Well, I was too, but not as much as he was. And then we got to know each other and started playing golf together and dating girls together and partying together and that sort of thing. We went to war together on a chartered uh, uh, flight from San Francisco 
over to the Philippines. And as quick as we got leveled off and they fed us and all that, Lance and I went back to the back and met the two flight, met two of the flight attendants and got dates with them, okay? And if you read the book about him, uh, the mouth, Into the Mouth of the Cat, that girl in there is the one that we met, and I still uh, keep in touch with her. But... In the, period, in the situation when his airplane went down in Laos, uh, he evaded capture for uh, 40, 43 days or so and uh, was dying, no food, just eating bugs and leaves and that sort of thing. And his back was broken so he couldn't stand up. He was crawling backwards, and he had a skull that was bashed open. So incredible courage, and then he tried to escape, and... He was just an amazing guy that uh, did everything he could to be the soldier he was committed to be. And so that was, and a really good guy. Uh, came from a really good home. You know, I, I think the one thing I want to say on this podcast, because it's so important, Lance grew up in a family where his father, he and his father had a great relationship. His mother and father, he had a great relationship with both of them. He had a lot of unconditional love. Lance was an artist and a fighter, hand-to-hand combat-type fighter and an artist and a football player and a fighter pilot. But he was an incredibly gifted artist, and he was an actor. He played uh, in high school. He played in the, the, the great king of Siam or whatever in one of those plays. He was so incredibly adaptable and so talented in so many areas, but he had incredible amount of unconditional love from his father and his mother. He had very little insecurity from shame or guilt from growing up. And as a parent, the more that you can provide that to your child, the healthier they're going to be, the tougher they're going to be in battle, and the more forgiving and accepting of others they will be. It's just a healthier person. So to me, that's one of the most important lessons I've learned in all of my POW experience, my leadership, is that help people be more healthy, believe in themselves, so they'll be more healthy. And they're gonna be better performers at work, they're gonna be better people at home, they're gonna be better parents and that sort of thing. And you two ended up in prison camp together, but you didn't know it. I didn't know it was him. So, he was, so how, what was that experience? Well, we were both in the Hanoi Hilton uh, there in the same cell block, and I didn't know he had been shot down. He went down two days after me, and he was about 30 or 40 feet away in another cell with two other guys, and uh, he was delirious, and he started screaming. In delir- it was obvious he was delirious because you weren't supposed to make any noise. They'd come in and beat you up. But they knew he was delirious and badly wounded and injured, so they didn't come in and beat him up, but they tried to quieten him down. But the English speaker came by checking on all the other cells in there to see what everything going okay, and he opened our cell, and I said, why don't you help that man who has a problem, sounds like he needs some help. And the English speaker said to me, he'd been in jungle long time, have one foot in grave. And I did not know it was Lance for two years that they was talking about. He died two days later. Yeah. Um, any other closing thoughts, Lee? 
there are some great lessons that we learned in the POW camps that apply to love and marriage. And so I've just finished a new book <laughs> called Captured by Love, Inspiring True Romance Stories from Vietnam POWs. And we have a website, POWromance.com, and it'll be out there uh, uh, where you can sign up to learn about it. But we have 20 stories of guys who are POWs more than five years, two of them more than eight years, several of them six or seven years, who uh, have had incredible love stories. And their romance is in there, but the love is there, and at the end of each chapter, the chapter's about nine or ten pages long, end of each story. We have some love lessons. and uh, But those love lessons of commitment, of caring, uh, were some of the same lessons that helped us survive five, six, seven, eight years as POWs. It's amazing how similar those lessons are. Yeah. When you know the broad, the, when you know the way broadly, you see it in all things. So these lessons apply everywhere. Um, yep. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for coming on. Uh, thanks for your service. Thanks for your sacrifice. It, it, just unbelievable what what you all went through. Thanks for continuing to pass these lessons on, these leadership lessons on. Uh, I want to close with a section of your book that so so to set the stage. You get back home. You're, you're getting your life and your career back on track, and that meant flying again. Meant flying again. And so you wrote about what that was like. I'm gonna take it to the book to close this thing out. You say, like most of the POWs, I had decided to continue my career in the service. The Air Force had instituted a plan called Operation Homecoming to requalify returning pilots. So on August 7th, 1973, under the watchful eye of my instructor pilot, I launched a T-38 out of Randolph Air Force Base in San Antonio. As we cleared the end of the runway, I rotated the white rocket into a max climb, pressed the mic button, and made the call to the tower. Freedom 34, airborne. This captive was really free. I had slipped the surly bonds of earth once more. That's freedom, sir. Thank you, Jocko. Thank you for having me on. It's been wonderful to be with you and Dave and to meet Echo here. And uh, I appreciate what you're doing to help all of us think about leadership, about service, and about just being good humans. So thank you guys for what you're doing. It's, it's an honor, sir. Thank you. And with that, Lee Ellis has left the building. And once again, we can look at our lives and see how ridiculously lucky and blessed we are to be doing whatever it is we're doing. Yes. And I mean, I mean, how much, I'm going through the book, like what part am I actually gonna read, right? Mm Mm-hmm. There's so much in there to read, and it's all just overcoming the worst possible challenges on a day. You know, we did barely even talked about. Hmm. I, I, I mean, I, I put, I read a little bit. You know, you're you're on a trip, 
and you didn't bring any food. And so it's been like nine hours since you ate and you're all bummed out. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. Yeah, for sure. Or, or you go uh, like, hey, we, we're, we're on a road trip and we're driving and we pull over. There's no food anywhere. So we finally pull over at like a rest stop and they got a bunch of junk mm-hmm. and you're mad, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dude, we're talking five and a half years of like a little piece of bread with with bugs in it. Yeah. That's every day. That's what vegetables. you're getting. That's yeah. what you're getting. Yeah. We barely even we touched about that. Yeah. It's insane. Yeah, not to mention just all the little details we take for granted where you know how he's like, Oh, I really wanted those socks. Yeah. Yeah. You ever tried? Ah, pair of socks. I mean one pair of socks. Coming from me is different than coming from you, but I was gonna ask, you ever try sleep when your feet are cold and you can't get <laughs> Sorry, I know wrong crowd, but I'm just saying most of us shit is hard. Can be. I'm just saying in our in our daily lives today. But yeah, he you know he barely mentioned that or whatever. But consider all that put together, you know, and not to mention the stuff he didn't mention. Yeah. By the way, but it's like okay, your your feet are cold. You can't sleep. You don't have any food. The food that you do have is bugs in it. That's your baseline. Yeah. On top of that, you're getting tortured. You may get killed. You may get dysentery. All these things are going on. You may have a bomb dropped on you. Yeah. An American bomb. Yeah. Right. And for, you're going at this for five and a half years. Five and a half years. The keeping the pot. This is where this is where I started like assessing myself in this as I was reading this. Is I'm just thinking I just am slacking in like nine different categories. So unappreciative. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. These guys are putting through such effort to improve themselves mm-hmm. in a prison camp. They're trying to learn a new language in a prison camp. They don't have food. Like I'm mad because you know I didn't my my my, my steak isn't ready yet. I'm kind of mad about that. My ribeye steak. Brutal. Is not you know the the when I got home my ribeye wasn't fully defrosted so I'm gonna have to like eat something else besides a ribeye steak tonight and I'm mad about it. it sucks. Meanwhile, these guys are in a prison camp and they're making courses to learn and improve themselves as they're resisting and fighting. I like that little thing that I talked about, like scaling the victories. That's yeah, a good yeah. thing to do with life. Yeah, you know, you got to scale your victories. Yeah. So, uh, we're lucky. We're lucky. Hey, what is uh, what? what so I, I keep out of get these mixed up. Which what's negative G's versus G's in the plane that we're flying? Negative G's is floating. Oh, okay. So like, if you're okay, so you know when they film uh, movies. Some movies, <laughs> and uh, they want to do like a, a gra- bro. You're zero not thinking straight. Are your feet cold? Going <laughs> <laughs> through some turmoil of it, but you know they they want to do a zero gravity scenario. Mm. So they go in a big plane, and they make that kind of the recording place, and then they do a, a parabola. Is what they call it, right? So that's mm. a negative G scenario, mm. yeah, right? You you're floating. 
Gotcha. And then Jesus, obviously. The, pre- the 18 G's in the injection sheet, Dave? 18 yeah, G's? Something like that. Something crazy. It's, you know, it's obviously a relatively short period of time, but yeah, yeah it's like a massive amount of initial onset G. If you eject once, I heard you're grounded for life. Is that true or not no, true? No, not true. What yeah. about two ejections? Mm. I, I don't actually know the, to my knowledge, I don't think there's anything that says you're automatically grounded. Uh-huh. I imagine a second ejection, you're going to get a pretty thorough physical, but I knew you know, a decent number of guys that ejected and went back to airplanes. When you thought about grabbing your ejection handle, what was the scenario? Yeah, I mean, that's a pretty fleeting thought. Uh, I'm in a dive. Um, I'm doing, I think I'm doing like just some, what I would consider like basic dumb bomb, dropping bombs. A 45 degree dive, you're probably going, I don't know, 350 knots, something like that. Where were you, Iraq? No, 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 this is in training. This is uh, in, in training here, like in Southern California. Mm-hmm. And um, as Iraq, I'm- Iraq, of course, Mark, come on, dude. <laughs> <laughs> um, I get what's called a, a, a flight control problem. So I get like a deedle deedle, like the jet starts making these weird noises. And I get this thing that lights up and I get this little int code that says FCS caution, which means my flight controls. And as I pull back on the stick, like for a second, nothing happens. Like this digital flight control thing. I'm like, whoa, I, I pulled back and like the jet didn't respond for probably a very short period of time. And in that moment, you have these thoughts of like, okay, well, this isn't good. And you're in a dive. I'm in a dive. Where's so your altitude? I would say probably 6,000 feet. And you know I can't do the the I, I can't exactly remember the math, but I bet you your 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 rate of descent you know is is not long tens of thousands of feet per minute. So you've got you know probably a handful of seconds, maybe twenty seconds or something mm-hmm. before you literally were to get hit the ground. And in that moment of hey, I, I I pull back, nothing happens. I need to think about what are my options are. You run through a few. One of them is I need to I might need to get out of the airplane. And then in, I think a very short period of time, you know a button you hit and then the pl- the plane's fine and you and, and and it ends up being totally uneventful but when you make a consideration of doing that it's a it's a significant um, event in your mind of having to think should I do this did you get the little adrenaline rush down your arms like when you almost crash a car T- totally you feel it like I, I guess as I'm talking to the story I think I rem- I feel it in my chest more than anything mm. like a tightening or some some uh you know I guess it's almost like an exhilaration or something anxious but um Dude, like I said, man, I almost don't even want to tell a story after listening to what he's talking about. Not to mention, too, I didn't fully, in reading the book, I wasn't able to piece together what what happened Mm -hmm. until he explained it. No, I wasn't either. And and to be honest with you, like, my pilot brain, I'm like, "This, this doesn't fully make sense to me. Not that I've known what it's like to get shot down. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about, well, why did the, like, why the airplane did that really didn't make sense because I, I know a lot about AAA. I've seen a bunch of videos. We study that stuff. And how the airplanes react to that is like didn't make sense. The other thing is what didn't make sense to me was uh, like Charlie Plum talking about it. You can see the surface-to-air missiles coming at you. Yeah. Said it looked like a it, telephone pole. Yes. And you're like looking at it going, oh, no, it's going to hit us. Because I was going to ask him, you know, in boxing, they say it's the punch that you don't see that knocks you out. Mm-hmm. And I was like, did you not see this thing? And, it's just, like, and then he explained what happened. It's yeah. like, oh, and, dang. And Sam's are a totally different story, too. This is a big, giant missile going to, you know, mock a couple, and they blow up. Like, they literally are designed to explode. AAA doesn't do that. They're just bullets. Mm-hmm. I mean, they don't have really... So when he explained it, he did it well. Like bullet goes through your wing, maybe it hits a hydraulic line or goes through your engine, but you're not going to just instantly detonate in cartwheel. You're gonna, you're probably going to pull out of it and go, oh dang, something's wrong. Some indicators will pop up. The jet might start to deteriorate over time, maybe seconds or minutes. 
But the scenario of being in a dive, being shot at by bullets, and then just cartilage, like literally up until sitting here listening and explain it, I never fully piece that together in mm-hmm. my head. In fact, the pilot was like, I don't understand. And I wasn't going to ask him, like, can you explain this better? Because I, I couldn't follow it. When he explained it, the, the fuse, the FMU, he called it, which I think is like fuse mechanical unit, literally just the thing that detonates the bomb. As soon as he said that, it all made sense. Like a bomb literally blew up underneath his jet. He probably had a string of bombs, probably picture two or three in a row, like mm-hmm. the old videos of bombs coming out. Yeah. The bottom bomb blows up, blows up the next bomb, blows up the next bomb, probably 100 feet away from his jet or less literally blows up his airplane from the bombs detonating and he's he's talking about tumbling that makes so much more sense and it's heartbreaking to think that in the end he actually didn't get shot down yeah um that clarified why it was such a catastrophic event requiring him to get out of the airplane so quickly with just this catastrophic series of failures hearing him explain it made it all make sense in my mind and it sucks because you know, obviously you can't predict the future, but yeah, were you tracking how long it took me to understand? I was like, wait a second. We like, were there together. You know, oh, okay. I say I might have I known kind of you like a little bit the ahead. terminology to, yeah. of FMU and like, oh yeah, yeah, I got that and, and I you know, probably studied some of the I was like, Wait, wait, what's FMU? Yeah. And he's like And, and I yeah, like, of oh, course dang. I understand that stuff maybe a little bit better, but in the end, like I'm there with you and going and once it registered I go, Oh dang. And why it's so heartbreaking is that you know this pilot or not the water is home. Oh, Get yeah. me to the water. And as he is, he's seeing the ocean, like in your brain as a pilot or anything, especially in our service. Yeah. Get me to the water. I'll be okay. Yeah. I'll just hang out there until somebody picks me up in yeah. a boat. We're cool. Especially you're down in the, it, in, in Southeast Asia, the water's got totally. a little bit warm, you know, you're <laughs> like, I got this. And if you tell me the, the water, and I think he said a couple miles away, yeah, a couple miles bro, away. that's literally seconds. Yeah. It's seconds. It's not a couple miles of walking. Yeah. It's in an airplane. It's just like thousand one, thousand two, yes. eject. Now I'm good. Yeah, it. And if you're if you got hit by AAA and your jets, what we call it, kind of like, kind of falling apart underneath you, you're like, hey man, buckle up, dude. We got about 30 seconds. You're gonna be yeah. fine. So the fact that it was catastrophic and had no choice, that was the difference. It would have been better had he been shot down by AAA because he probably could have just pulled the thing out, waffled up, motor shuts down, catches on fire. He's talking to the guy. You get 30 seconds. You're fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously that didn't happen, but I did not follow that series of events from the book until he explained it and then and then it's just awful And it happened to a bunch of people dude, and he's telling that I I, oh. I, I had never I Had never heard those I did not know that was uh, the Nothing. case in my nope did not know that from you know Early phantom days mid to late 60s big cover up. that fuse is predates anything I ever flew with you know our fuses were Super reliable. We knew how to program them. they worked awesome I don't think I ever once heard a story of a fuse prematurely detonating a, 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 a weapon that we lost in an airplane. We had, you know, different mechanical failures here and there, but nothing like that. Certainly not an endemic thing where multiple airplanes were lost as a result. It's awful. It sucks. Insane. You know, I, I noticed, remember, uh, I think it was an underground podcast we did. We were talking about somebody using the terms putting hands on yeah yeah. like i gotta put hands on them yeah and it's sort of a it's does that remind you of when dave says get out of the airplane (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's like it's like the lingo that kind of it's like the lingo that downplays it like like, but it's still kind of like badass but at the same time you're like wait a second (laughs) like i might have to get out of the airplane yeah (laughs) yeah yeah i think it 
Yeah, very similar. You know, same put deal. hands on. Yeah. So there. there what's, you go. what's put hands on? Putting hands on someone is like, dude, I was, you know, this guy was getting my face. I had to put hands on. Oh, him. yeah. You know, it's like yeah, another yeah, yeah. way of it's saying a, it. Instead of just saying, like, I had to knock this dude out got or whatever. It, yeah. Instead of you just saying, like, oh, you know, you got to eject. Cool. You got to be like, you know, you might have to get out of the yeah. airplane. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> whatever, bro. You guys always say that kind of stuff, too, though. But, like, what? Give me Putting an example. rounds down range. Yeah, that's You know, like that kind of stuff. I'm probably just, like, so guilty of, like, 47 different little statements like that. It didn't even until you brought it up I was recounting like when did I say that like that's <laughs> how you say it so it didn't even cross my mind that that was a thing but yeah, yeah put rounds down range yep that's what we're doing yep. or even even the even contact when you say we can or the enemy contacted us or whatever yeah it's like bro they totally attacked you guys with like guns and stuff <laughs> yeah that's more bigger that, deal yeah well that, that, oh, then it turns into what, what Dave's talking about because like you are so that's your vote you're you're first yeah. it's not there's no translation you're just like oh enemy contact yeah that's yeah. what it's called it's yeah and it seems like even that get out of the airplane it kind of seems like hey let's not make it it's a huge deal we all know that already but let's not make it a huge deal kind of a thing and think about it that so we can Navigate through the scenario. Mm-hmm. See what I'm saying? Just it's almost like it's on airplane. purpose. Yeah, just he just gets out. Bro, just so everyone knows, getting out of the airplane is what you should do when you land it. Like, <laughs> hey, I'm good now. I'm going to get out of the airplane, yeah. right? Yes. It's like the that most nonchalant pilot yeah. thing to be like, oh, I'm at I'm at six thousand feet, closing with the earth. I'm going five hundred knots. I'm going to get out of the airplane. Just going to get out of the airplane. Get right out. Not like, (laughs) (laughs) you know, which is what it really is. Well, whatever. That's the same thing with putting rounds down range. And same thing with putting hands on someone. You know, it's like, oh, you're that means you're going to, you're about to get in a fight with someone. Yeah. Blood's going to be drawn. People are getting stabbed or whatever. Yeah. Put hands on. Yeah. I'm going to put hands on this dude. So he had a good one too that. I've heard a billion times, but he in the phrase he used the phrase "out of airspeed, out of ideas," yeah. which oh, yeah. is like classic aviator, you know, lingo of yeah, you're I'm done, screwed. yeah, we're done. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right on. So you know, speaking of food, well, I did notice he mentioned oh. he had a Cutlass Supreme yeah. with wire wheels on. Yeah. I had one of those too, by the way. 1985 Cutlass Supreme. Did you Wire use wheels. the same logic as to purchasing that car that he did? Because the reason he bought that was like the coolest story ever. Yeah, yeah the bucket seats versus the, I don't want, the I don't bench. Know, I don't need a bucket seats. I need a bench seat so yeah. I can get that girl right next to me. <laughs> what, what year was your Cutlass Supreme? 85. So that's the same as the Impala, not the same as the GTO. A little yeah. different. Yeah. I mean, it's the same concept, though, because yeah. the Impala is like legit. <laughs> and sure. the Cutlass Supreme is like... Yeah. A legit version, but it doesn't have quite the power. Yeah, uh, and I didn't, especially at the time, I didn't. Not only did I not have the option, I bought it from my friend, but I didn't know that much about it. Anyway, I just liked the look. Then I bought the wire wheels. You know, good deal Dave Burke had a Corvette, right? Yes, sir. It just did. straight yep, up, standard. just like 100%, just <laughs> Top Gun City. I may have to post a throwback Thursday uh, Instagram with me and that vet here. Oh, yeah. Was that your Good dream idea. car? A one hundred percent. What color was yours? The first one I got in flight school oh, was, was, was yeah. multiple, bro. He's was multiple ones. Yeah. What was it? Uh, what color was the first one? Black on black. What was the second one? Uh, it was like a light, like a pewtery kind of like a metallic color. Yeah. The first one was like a ninety-five black six-speed vet. It was just. Were they fast? Dude, they were awesome. Really? Yeah. Because aren't there some vets that are a little bit wack? Yeah, the mid-80s to like the early 90s. I think I had what's called, I know a, 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 an officiato, I'm going to get it wrong. I think it was it was the C5, like the, that generation mm-hmm. was the first real, they had come back to like, it was a, a legit, legit Yeah, and, and the second one I got, which was an 02, that was totally legit. 
cruising a Top Gun in that thing. Have you seen the new ones with the yeah, with the like mid the engine? Yes. Are you gonna get one of those? I've I've probably outgrown the the vet. That was uh you know my kid childhood dream and like young, you know early twenties. That's a but don't they just reel people back in dude, by going that new one on that thing? That new one's legit. Looks awesome. It's like legit across the board. Yes, like it competes. Yes, I'm not gonna get one. I don't know, man. I think you should. <laughs> okay, all right. Maybe I'll think about it. <laughs> you should yeah. get into the Corvette, as they say. Dude, that's awesome. Uh, all right. Speaking of food, speaking of food, so what time is it right now in the world? I don't know. It's been all many, many hours since I've eaten. Yeah. And when I when I took Lee Ellis downstairs to see him off, I grabbed a milk, a ready to drink milk, because I haven't eaten today. This is the first thing I'm eating. Cool. It's delicious. Mm-hmm. This is a ready to drink. They're out there. Uh, they're in Wawa. We're making them as many as we can right now, which is not easy. Because the demand signal, you know, we, we had these at camp, at jiu-jitsu camp. Mm-hmm. We got enough for like six days or whatever. They were gone in two days. People were just drinking them back to back to back to back to back to back. Mm-hmm. They're awesome. Um, get some. Mm-hmm. If you want to get some, go to jockofuel.com. Go to Wawa. Go to Vitamin Shop and get yourself some. We're going to make as many as we can. And we're upping the production, all that stuff. Because uh, people want things that are healthy and you will supply one thing that we're supplying better Mm. is discipline go the drink yeah do we call it an energy drink yes we kind of have to the new era is it comparable to a normal energy drink no because a normal energy drink is giving you type 2 diabetes and some other crap issues yeah issues So Jocko Discipline Go, an energy drink that's truly good for you. Your kids can drink it. I mean, maybe not your nine-year-old, but your teenage kids. Look, your teenage kid's going to go out and grab one of the other energy drinks, which is literally horrible for them. It's poison. So we're not doing that. Let them drink something healthy. So there you go. Discipline Go. Jocko Fuel. JockoFuel.com. Who's the, 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 what do you call it? It's like a caricature of the, the teenager kid with the flat brim hat. They call him Kyle. You ever heard of this guy? No. It's not a real guy. It's like just a caricature. Okay. And he has the energy drink. Wait, is it Chad? No. Oh no, Chad no is Kyle. Yeah, Kyle yeah. is different. Yeah. 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 So he has the, who's Chad? Chad is like a, a not a womanizer, but a guy. He who kind of all a stud. Girl, a stud. Yeah. Okay. Exactly right. Got it all going for him in Chad. that way. And oh, Kyle's just a bro. Kyle's is Kyle a bro? Kind of like the bro. Uh, you know, flat brim hat. Mm-hmm. May or may not have sparkles on his oversized white shirt. May or may not be a gamer has an energy drink. Okay, usually a bad one. It's kind of a negative stigma. Like they kind got of tease it. him. Kind of. Not so totally. Kyle's not drinking one. No, no. He, you he's gotta, not drinking a discipline. Go. No, he's not. He's drinking a junk energy drink. But so you need a different guy now. See uh-huh. what I'm saying? You gotta be. I don't know. Somebody's training jujitsu. Yes. Somebody that's working out. Getting up early. Somebody that's getting up early. And getting say. after it. Yes, right. sir. There you go. Uh, yeah, jockofuel.com, originusa.com. Get stuff made in America, get shirts, get belts, get boots, get jeans, get stuff made in America. Get stuff made in America. That's what I'm talking about. But those new, uh, okay, so Delta 68 jeans, those mm. are the two new colors. Mm-hmm. Oh, what do you guys call them? The wash or whatever. Yeah. I'm not in the industry yeah. that much, but yeah. nonetheless. So I, so I use the light ones. We mm-hmm. went out to dinner the other day. And my son really mm-hmm. liked the light ones. He's six, but for him to point it out and say that those jeans are dope, 
It's one of the litmus tests. Yeah. It's true. He likes Mulk too. He likes Mulk too. Yeah. So he's just across the board of legit kid. Approval. I yeah. like this kid. Just approving, <laughs> approving. <laughs> and he's kind of hard to please too. He's one of those kind of guys. Oh, really? Because I got one of these RTDs, not the not the Mulk, uh-huh. like the other brand oh, okay. that was kind of supplied at, at one point, given the, the place we were at. And he didn't like them. No, straight mm-hmm. up to say junk. That one's junk. Yeah. And now he's down for the cause. Oh, he's totally down for the cause. Check. Oh, uh, OriginUSA.com. Get yourself some American-made stuff. That's my, that's, look, we're supporting America. I think that's just self-evident, right? That's what we're doing. And, you know, even if, let's say we're like, oh, well, I'm not necessarily I'm sure I support America. Okay, well, do you at least not want to support slave labor? Yep. Do you at least not want to support a 13-year-old girl working in a sweatshop in somewhere in some foreign country for $3 a month? That could crumble, by the way, at any moment, yeah. like it has before in the, yeah. in the past. So, uh, hey, look, you don't want to support America? Fair enough. Okay. But do you want to support the virtual, uh, uh, a form of slavery that's taking place right now? You probably don't. Supportorigenusa.com. There you go. It's true. Also, Jocko's store. Jocko's store. JockoStore.com is where you can get discipline. Did you just mess that up? You kind of messed it up. No, I was reinforcing it. See okay. what I'm saying? So I say Jocko Store, that's what I'm about to talk about. Okay. URL, uh, what do you call it? Website, mm-hmm. JockoStore.com. Okay. Discipline equals freedom. Shirts and hats and hoodies. We do have the shirt locker. Gone are the days of not being able to find a t-shirt in the event that you are a t-shirt wearer, which a lot of us are. But those days are gone. You always have a new one every month. Boom. All designs are good. Real positive feedback. Look out for that one, jogglestore.com. <laughs> I'm here to tell you. <laughs> Bruh. What? Your feet must be cold or something, right? You're all over the map. No, I wasn't. No, that was very uh, cohesive. You, you see what I'm saying? I don't know. Uh, subscribe to the podcast. Go to jockounderground.com. Subscribe to that too. Go to YouTube channel. Subscribe to that. Get Psychological Warfare. Get flip, flip, flipsidecanvas.com. Dakota Meyer. Books. We got Leading with Honor by Lee Ellis. We got Engage with Honor by Lee Ellis. Check out those books. Tons of lessons learned. Uh, incredible books to read. Only Cry for the Living, Speaking of War, Holly McKay. She wrote an awesome book. Risked her life to write that book. Pick that one up, especially with everything that's going on in the world right now. It's good stuff to understand. You know all the books I've written. You might want to check those out, especially the kids' books. Come on. Come on. Maybe you're like too late to save. Maybe you're like discipline equals freedom. It's not going to help me because I'm just too. I'm already just just a disaster. But don't let your kids go off the path. Break the cycle. Break the cycle. Get your kids on the path at a minimum. Mm-hmm. Look, should you get on the path? Yes, you should get discipline equals freedom field manual. Mm-hmm. You should get that for your 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 cousin and your dad and your mom. Right? Do that. At but at a minimum. Get your nephew and your kid and, well, you know, the people you know, the kids you know, get them with the Way of the Warrior Kids series, get a Mike and the Dragon, just do that. Do them a favor, a lifelong favor. Actually, on front, we have leadership consultancy. We solve problems through leadership. We have the next muster is in Orlando, April 3rd through the 5th. So if you want to come to that, you better sign up now. The one that we're Atlanta sold out. Everything we do sells out. So if you want to come to any of our events, go to echelonfront.com. If you have a company, you want us to work with your company, helping you with leadership, echelonfront.com. We also have Online Training Academy. You can get better, and you don't have to create courses from memory in a prison camp to get better. You can go to 
extremeownership.com. You can learn about leadership from us. We don't have to hit a tap code, thankfully. We can just sit there and answer your questions in a live session. Or you can go through the courses that we have on there. Learn about life. And if you want to help service members active and retired, you want to help their families, Gold Star families, check out Markley's Mom, Mama Lee. She's got an incredible charity organization. If you want to donate or you want to get involved, go to americasmightywarriors.org. And don't forget about Micah Fink, who's up there in the wilderness, reintroducing veterans to their soul, heroesandhorses.org. Once again, if you want to follow Lee Ellis or you want to connect with Lee Ellis, leadingwithhonor.com. He's got an Instagram, at leadingwithhonor. He's got a Twitter, Leon Lee Ellis. Facebook, at Leon, in parentheses, Lee Ellis. And his LinkedIn is Lee Ellis. The books, Leading With Honor, Engaging With Honor. And of course, Captured by Love is a new one. I don't know when it's coming out, but it's coming out soon. So be on the lookout for that one. They, he wrote it with a love expert named Greg Godek. Somehow I didn't get tapped as the love expert. But uh, that's the way it is. If you wanna follow us on Twitter, on the gram, on Facebook, Echo is at Echo Charles. Dave is at David R. Burke. And I am at Jocko Willink. Watch out for the algorithm. Cause it'll grab you. And thanks once again to Colonel Lee Ellis for his service and sacrifice and to all those POWs who faced such horror but maintained their honor and therefore the honor of our great nation. And thanks to all the military personnel out there. You sign the dotted line and swear to uphold the Constitution regardless of what you face. So thank you for protecting us and our way of life. And the same goes to the rest of our police force Law enforcement, firefighters, paramedics, EMTs, dispatchers, correctional officers, Border Patrol, Secret Service, all first responders, you all swear an oath to protect us. And we thank you for your service as well. And to everyone else that's out there, when you're facing something tough, like life, because life is tough, remember the Stockdale paradox. That is that you can never confuse faith that you're gonna prevail in the end. So you gotta believe that you're gonna prevail in the end and you can't afford to lose that, but at the same time, you gotta have the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they might be, so that you can overcome them. So face the facts and know you can win and then go out and get after it. And until next time, this is Dave and Echo and Jocko, out.